Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, and also not as always, are two men. One is from the Canada of the South, Texas, and his name is Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm joyful today. And the other is from the Texas of the North, which is Canada. <laughs> Father Harrison Ayer from that. That's technically Alberta. Okay, I love Alberta. Yeah, if you're from Texas, you'd love Alberta. I I thought when I was there, I thought I was in. I was like, this is basically just Fort Worth. I was in Calgary. Yeah, yeah. And then like I didn't realize how like country music stars that I've listened to my whole life. Some of them are from Calgary, like Terry Clark and and those people. I mean, yeah, I, yeah like a lot of really good country stars that we listen to down here. Are, our Alberta people. Yeah. And there's the stampede every year and everyone loves their stents and hats, stents and hats. And, uh, and oil is a huge thing down there. I mean, it really is. It is the Texas. Oh, and, and, and it's, it's a large the stampede, the Calgary stampede. I get it. Yeah. I get, I yeah. get it now. The I've not CFL been to the stampede. Team. I've not so, actually been to the stampede. I just know it exists. I, I don't know. I've only been once, but like, I, I don't know how much of it is traditional, but there's the, there was this big performance of these acrobats and then these kids singing, uh, Sweet City Woman, and it was just—it was just like breathtaking. I was there for the hundredth anniversary one. Oh wow! Um, and so yeah, no, I—I like—I loved Canada. I remember mm-hmm. being like, I'm totally—if I could afford it, it was just really expensive. But I was like, I—I I, I was there a month, and I was like, I would totally move here and live in like the Kensington neighborhood in Calgary. Yeah, and like that would be the coolest life. And they all spoke mostly—they spoke pretty good English pretty good english could you hear the u's after the o's color color oh do they do, is it, does canada do do they spell everything in british yes because that's the better english mm. it's i mean i agree i do like it and i like to switch the z's for s's but like when i write stuff for the herald yeah like i just write it in american english and they send it back in british and I'm always like, wow, I sound yeah. so much smarter, like saying program <laughs> with, you know, the M-E. With an M-E. Well, we actually don't do that. We do it the American way, like that, with program. Okay. So, well, yeah. that's just best of Can- both worlds. Canadians, I could always understand. And the other right. thing that was funny is people were like, so does everyone end all their sentences with A? And a lot more people were doing hey. Like, it was a lot of like, you have a nice day, hey? Yeah, that's more of an Alberta thing, I find. Like, it depends. if you have a bit of a French-Canadian background, you tend to say A more. Like, my grandpa side of the family is all French Canadian. So I say A a lot because that's just the French Canadian thing to do. Okay. That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. The only, honestly, out of all the different English dialects, the only one that I absolutely cannot understand is New Zealand. Like every New okay. Zealand, New Zealander, I don't know what, what about fly the Concords? I don't know how to answer that. Um, <laughs> do you not know who they are? Or do you not know how to answer that? I don't know who they are. <gasps> Wild. Wow. Wild. I'm Sorry, Father Harrison. Now. I didn't know this until Matt, right now. Matt, I, yeah. I mean, you failed as a friend to Zach. Well, this is just one in the list of many ways <laughs> that I failed as a friend to Zach. I do know of that that really cool uh, Quebec band that sings in French, um, but I Which, don't know what they're called. Okay. Uh, but they sing the, gener- the, the Generations song about like no your grandmother had 14 children. I don't know if I know this song. Oh, it's really good. You read it, and it, it's like your great—it's like your great grandmother had fourteen children, 
raised them all herself. Your grandma had, you know, six of her own. Your mom had two. You have none. You have a dog. And then it's like your grandfather, you know, worked the farm. Yeah. Your father sold the farm. You live in a one-bedroom apartment. Like, it's it's an interesting where it kind of shows, like, this collapse of, like, culture. And they're, they were, right. like, lamenting the fall of Quebec, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, when I New Zealand, I know that technically people from New Zealand speak English, but it, it's just like it's so fast, and I, I, I'm, I, it's just bewildering. But Canadians, I can usually converse with. Like, yeah, like right now. Yeah, I would say yeah. New Zealand is seems closer to South African. I don't know if I don't know yeah. if that'll offend anyone, but no, I would uh, agree with that though. Yeah, that's so a funny South African comment. Two people I worked with. <laughs> One of them, um, he was from South Africa, um, and so he spoke Afrikaans, which is like the Dutch language. Like it's what the kind of that's what the Dutch settlers spoke, um, and it's currently speak. Um, but it, you know, if you haven't heard of it, it seems almost like a fake language. Like it's called Afrikaans with a K. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this friend was interviewing for a job, and the interviewer was like, "Oh, just like a tip, you may not want to put that you're fluent in a fake language." <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> they became very good friends, and they laugh about it. But it was funny just because, like, she was like, "You put on here Afrikaans," and I'm like, "Yeah, we don't in America. We don't know a lot about South Africa." I know it's a lot smaller than South America. It sounds like that. That sounds yeah. That would be a very American thing to say. Basically, yeah. Does it is it weird when people call Canada America's hat? That's why I prefer to call America Canada's underwear. Canada's underwear. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Don't leave home without us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's 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 that's, that's oh wait yeah I don't breathable, know I, breathable honest, support you know. <laughs> I, uh, Father Anthony was the first person to ever, like, I haven't actually heard it too much, but Father Anthony was the one who kind of used it a lot with me, and so that's where I kind of started, I was just like, I'm going to fight back, I'm just going to call it, call it, uh, yeah, America is Canada's underwear. So Canada had politics recently, I heard that they, you guys did politics? Yeah, we Um, did, Did, you you heard about it? It actually, like, I heard that you re-elected your first black prime minister. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um I'm just kidding oh my gosh oh my gosh um anyway uh, yeah it's so just i will i try to keep my personal political views personal partially because a i'd never actually it was interesting like i when i was looking at all the parties i'm like yeah i don't i don't see anything in any of these parties that will really represent me like I was I was telling I was at the prisoners for dinner last night. And I was just saying to them, I was just disappointed that. I mean, there's a lot of moral issues that I think are important to discuss for society in Canada, but I'd say the most pressing issue at the moment, while while abortion is always going to be a, a good, an important uh, thing to fight for, against, mm-hmm. it's not. There's no political clout to do that right now. Like it just doesn't exist. Okay. But where we do have political clout to fight. Uh, fight for justice and is around the area of euthanasia. So even though it's been legalized, there's still a lot of issues around conscience rights and the implementation of new laws to defend people's consciences in in those cases uh, Mm -hmm. can still be something that can be developed. And I thought that would have been a a great platform for a party to really take a stand on, and no one did. Do you think that 
like we we love abortion down here, like talking right. about it and doing all that. So Canada's right. more so you're, you're more euthanasia up there. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, we I mean, abortion we have no law against abortion here mm-hmm. at all. But uh, euthanasia, like two years ago now, I think it was it was legalized. Or sorry, the courts dictated three years ago that we had to develop some law, and the Liberal Party did. And so uh, the problem is, though, it the law is still very vague. It lacks a lot of protections for religious people and people who just want to oppose it for other ethical reasons. And so there's still a lot of room to maneuver. And and, and not only that, uh, there were, there was vagaries in the law around how, who, what kind of person can ask for assisted suicide. That's the crazy thing is they like in uh, the Netherlands they've got like depressed 25 year olds you doing it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, because it's so vague and like mm-hmm. in the U S so is it all of Canada that has euthanasia? Yeah. So we're different than Canada. We're, we're not, uh, or we're different than the U S I should say. Well, I know like for the Americans, province. the state, the state has a lot, the states have a lot more uh, yeah, autonomy. Like it's completely illegal in Texas, but like it's legal in New Jersey and Oregon, and like, I think, what, right? Yeah. yeah and Oregon, like Oregon I, is big on it. Yeah. yeah. Like when I visited New Jersey, I can see why people pay to die there. <laughs> But um, it is. I haven't seen Oregon, but I, I, I guess, I guess it's you know who knows. Oregon's pretty gorgeous. I've, that's what I've heard. I want to visit Portland. Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I get the same climate as they do in Washington State, and it's mountains and huge trees and ocean, and it's amazing. Yeah, but sure. you know, yeah, it's so. Uh, well, this is actually. I would say this is my interesting takeaway from the whole election, though, is. And it's actually, it's more of a, it's a political observation I've been making since essentially Brexit. And it's just been playing itself more and more. I do, I wonder if the project of nationalism, in the sense that the nation state itself can can support and supply for the needs of all the members of its country, which is a very, it's been, I would say, a strong project of the last hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's coming to an end. Because you see those political div- like if you look at the electoral map for 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 the election, well, there's two interesting things. First, the conservatives actually had the popular vote. Popular vote, yeah. Um, but like once you hit Winnipeg, once you hit Manitoba, and half and through most of BC, it went all conservative. So that tells you that the government that was elected, they're a minority government, so they need other parties to prop them up to get things passed. So they won't last for four years. They'll last for maybe two years. Um, but And that whole thing's wild. I, it took me forever to understand this whole coalition government yeah. thing. I think it's actually good because actually, like, so for example, uh, one of the issues around Trudeau while he was prime minister was that he exerted excessive pressure on the attorney general with his office against... Uh, to help stop losing 5,000 jobs in Quebec for a certain company. And the AG kind of broke this to the media. She left the Liberal Party. She was actually reelected as, a, as an independent this last election. And so that, but he, because he controlled all the committees, he could really slow the pace down on, on everything. Now that he has a minority government, he actually has no control over committees. So it'll be interesting to see, will there be further investigations into uh, into his into his activities of, of the use of his office and that. So, uh, a minority government is not a very strong position to have, and it's a very difficult thing to hold up in the long term. 
Interesting. He's like, yeah. like no offense, but he to me seems like a dumber version of Macron in France. Like <laughs> nobody likes Macron, but like right. he also doesn't have like this closet full of of like like horribly offensive past life actions. I know. You know. I know. And but I mean, like, but, the costumes like the, were kind of funny, but like right. obviously not tasteful. Right, um, but the one where he actually went to—he had ripped jeans and he painted his legs. Like it's <laughs> well. So this know, is the, this, this was my interesting takeaway, right? Like I, I was actually saying, one of the nice things about being Canadian is that yeah, heard a little bit about the election, and then it was called uh, forty days ago, and then you have the election cycle for forty days, and now we'll hear about it for another week, and then we're done. That's it. We won't hear about it again until, until yeah, exactly. We don't have a three-year. You know, we're not ramping up for three years for the next presidential election. Which is like I watch American politics stuff, and I'm just like, shoot me now, please. Yeah, oh, yeah. you, you all have your own 24 hour news network up there. What's the deal? Um, we have news networks, but it's just politics. I mean, it's part of it. It's just uh, how we're constituted as a country. I, I think one of the great virtues of the American people, to an extent, is their their patriotism. They're in the sense of like they see a need for political a- activism which is almost non-existent up here in Canada. We're very apathetic towards politics. Um, but at the same time, um, I, well, we, right, don't, like, we, don't, we, don't, we don't, we don't obsess over it. And that's actually, for me, that, like, like, you know how a virtue can be taken to excess, right? Sure. I think that sometimes happens with, I think that happens actually a lot with American politics. Um, while up here, our vice is also a virtue for us and that we're not inundated with it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But it's very interesting because I think if that would happen with someone running for president in the States, they would lose. Like, because the other yeah. parties would jump on that so hard and the the ones here didn't. Interesting. Well, and yeah. also, he's the. it's not a general election in the sense that, like, he wasn't on the ballot as prime minister everywhere. Right. right. It's like you 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 vote for your member of parliament. Right. And so that probably helps too, because like your your representative of the Liberal Party, you know, his or her blackface pictures didn't leak. So like your neighbors didn't have any reason to. Yeah. Yeah. To not. Right. So. I mean, Unless the prime minister has. Days, I don't know where you live. Well, it's, well, it's interesting though, because like constitutionally, a prime minister has a lot more power than a president has. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because he dictates the whole agenda for the party. Um. So you are, in a way, always voting at a prime minister, but you're doing it through your local representatives, and you know that whatever way I vote, whoever wins a seat is going to help dictate the how how a party is going to be able to function in parliament. It's, Who it's, knew, it's, guys, that you guys were we were going to get a, a lesson in Canadian civics? Poly- yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. It's uh, it's yeah. It is. And you guys is. still have the Queen. You guys are still technically a monarchy. So that's that's great. right. Yeah. And I I just kind of wish it was more of a monarchy. I'm not that I'm a monarchist. I would mm. just prefer it over the state of democracy in Canada right now. Father Harrison, you don't need to give any butts about monarchy on this podcast. <laughs> just let it go. Let it fly. <laughs> That reminds me of, um, so Charles Coulomb, who writes for the Catholic Herald, he has this like old... Christian of the Latin Mass in Los Angeles. Yes, he's hilarious. So he has this like, it's like maybe one of the first websites that existed, but it had a a frequently asked questions on monarchy. And because he's like, he's obviously very in favor. And he was, someone was like, how would the United States go about establishing a future monarch? And he's like, I really don't know. 
you know, th- that would be kind of difficult to do. And then someone said, what about, um, you know, simply having, you know, going back under the English crown and having Queen Elizabeth II be the reigning monarch of the United States? And he said, well, we could do worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. Queen Elizabeth II is not such a shabby choice. Um, no, she's awesome. She's kind of awesome. I mean, I try not to, again, like, I try not to keep up with anything that happens with her because it's all spoilers for the crown, but, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, man, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, anyway, so we brought you on for a reason, Matt, what was that reason? <laughs> well, before we get to that, Zach, oh, uh, our, our third ever our third most popular episode ever is our episode about the Lord of the Rings and the Eucharist with Scott L. Smith. Do you remember that one, Zach? Yes, that was a it, fun one. Yeah, it really, it's third most listened to ever, which is pretty impressive. Because it has, it's been out like three months less than our most listened episode, so it might catch it, catch up to it. Hmm. Well, because Scott did so... Scott did so good for us, and we like Scott. We wanted to talk just a second about his latest project he's doing. He's doing a course for All Saints University called What You Need to Know About Mary But Were Never Taught. So it's a bunch of lessons on how to defend the church's teachings on the Blessed Mother, which seem pretty awesome and pretty useful, especially... When you're going up, when you're having debates with other religions that don't care about the Blessed Virgin Mary nearly as much. Um, but yeah, we uh, he wanted us to talk about it. We were like, obviously, we love Scott Smith. So if you're interested, you can go to allsaintsuniversity.teachable.com and find his course there. And uh, if you want to go back and do our archives and listen to his episode, it was it was pretty pretty cool we did we didn't know a lot about lord of the rings zach and i and that is very obvious but he he holds our hands and guides us through it is this why uh, you went to go visit caitlin uh yeah i i lost i lost all my lord of the rings cred so i had to go stay for a week in her basement <laughs> until it was just zapped into my head um but yeah talk go check out what scott smith's thing at all saints university com and learn some stuff about the blessed virgin mary Never a bad idea. I know it's never really. Yeah, she's is. great. She's cool. She's kind of cool. Fan. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. fan. I yeah. stand with Mary. Just stand with Mary. If Mary was on the ballot, you'd always vote for her, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Amen. Uh, all right. So today, back in July, speaking mm-hmm. of our third most listened to episode, we want to make this the most most listened to episode. <laughs> uh, back in July, Zach and Father Harrison started chatting on Twitter about Vatican II, and I jumped into Father Harrison's GM DMs, not GMs, that's a car company, and I said, Father Harrison, please come on the podcast, it's July, let's set it up, and he said, okay, that's perfect, the rest of the month is pretty busy, so let's, let's do it in August. So here we are in August, <laughs> and it's... Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's like what August the sixty seventh or something like that. Yeah, August the yeah <laughs> August the ninety first and uh, <laughs> oh my gosh and uh, I we're doing it and we're doing it now the 
let's let the it, let's it, let the listener behind the curtain very quickly. Father Harrison unfortunately deleted all of his tweets because yeah. fools were fools were coming after him, and he locked down. And he said, you know, instead of engaging the fools, I'm just locking it down. So he locked it down, which is a good choice. But also, unfortunately, the tweets that him and Zach had were deleted. But we can replicate that because we're halfway smart individuals, and we can do it. Zach, you, you were know, about to say something. This is a big deal. Yeah, this is a big deal for the Roman Circus podcast because we have kind of uh, like – as a sort of rule, we don't talk about the Second Vatican Council. So this is our very first time <laughs> to talk about it. Wow! Um, right? Even when, so like, so even yeah. Wow. Okay, that's a that's quite the honor. Even when what? Uh, never mind. I was just thinking something, and then I just decided not to say it. So it's all good. <laughs> See, on this podcast, you don't filter your thoughts. Then I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. So we, we've always just thought that there's a lot of podcasts and other like a lot of other people cover it. And so, like, we're there's a lot more that we could talk about instead. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, there's just whole, like, institutions set up to talk about Vatican II. Right, so we, right. you know, we can leave it to them. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a first. We're breaking wow. our silence on, wow. on the Second Vatican and our, Council. And our silence was deafening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's good to do. And I think actually, like, when we were having, I remember the dialogue very clearly. I just, and I, like in the sense of like us having it. Um, and I think it's always good that you can have a discussion in charity. A disagreement mm-hmm. in charity is always a good thing. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, I, I'm still going to be your friend no yeah, matter exactly. how wrong you are. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even though, you know, I'm doing a PhD in theology. Well, that's, we, you go back to our <laughs> early archives and where we make fun of PhDs. But that was, what is the, what is the degree? Is it PhD? Is that what goes at the end of the, is that what gets affixed to your name? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Theological. Theolo- it's, it's doing stuff in Ratzinger, which is kind of cool. So. Oh, that is cool. We yeah, were joking. I was like, no, guys, I have not gone to Rome and got an STD. However, <laughs> I have read a lot of books. Um, which hey, I don't you can know. get diseases from books, too. You know. I mean, hey. Yeah. Uh, well, but that is the name of a, a degree. I know. I know. Okay. I know. I remember after my conversion, and we, you, know, you find out about, the, as you learn about Catholic culture and uh, Catholic nomenclature uh, and and uh, you you start to th- you just, you make all those jokes when you're a young person with all that stuff around like STDs and all that stuff. Yeah, I have I have Even never now we made call them a joke STIs. like that. I've never <coughs> never once made a joke like that ever. Please don't put on the internet I made a joke like that. <laughs> and well, it's funny too because especially once you start to understand the the life of priests of some priests in Rome, some clerics in Rome. Making a joke around STDs in Rome actually even has another level of meaning to it. <laughs> oh, no. Right? Oh, no. It's, oh, no. Hey, I know, oh, no, but it's all true. <laughs> like, okay, well, I mean, we know that. We, yeah, we, we told know that. Everyone, we did our episode last summer. We were like, you know, guys, you just need to assume that, that this kind of stuff is, like, worse than you've ever heard, and you just yeah. need to let it go. Yeah, exactly. Because no, no. It, because know. guess what? This has been going on for 2,000 years, and the church is right. still here. And the church is still here. Uh, right. Pr- and that's always kind of our shtick of, like, you yeah. know, guys, like, don't kid yourself. Like, don't don't be naive and think right. that, like, you yeah. know, it's all puppies and sunshine. But, exactly. you know, recognize it doesn't have to be, and it never yeah. has been. So, yeah. you know. And the church has been through a lot saint. worse. Yeah, and the church has gone through a lot worse. Um, I, a, a formator in seminary always said, he goes, you want to know why there's so much faith in Rome? Because when priests go there to study, they leave it there. 
that's that's good. Oh, I was like, man. I like that. I like that. I thought that was quite good. That is both good that and is sad because the the knack kind of has like a better reputation lately. Yeah. I feel like um, because of Cardinal Dolan, right? Is it or somebody like cleaned it up? But he, I, he, my he, understanding he, is it used to have a very bad reputation. Yeah, and now it's better. Well, it's funny too. Like I. I, I have a lot of friends who um, who will essentially tell me, like, if you're going to go do advanced degrees, don't go do it in Rome. Not that you can't get a good education there, but it's just they say you're going to get a lot more thorough of an education in other institutions. Well, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's like Rome is the epicenter of, the, of running the church. Like, it's yeah. primarily there to keep the church going. And so I'm always like— And I it does a great job at that all the time. Well, I mean, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Out, it's outlived quite a few other. Uh, this is true, I know. Administrations, but it's like you know they need their best and brightest like working for right. that. Whereas other places, you can maybe calm down and be more a man of letters and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, like it's just interesting. Like when you start to look into like what a Roman, essentially, what happens in Rome is you go into like a doctoral program. And they'll say there's the point of guy to say there's your thesis director. You can talk to him when you have your first chapter written. Like it's, well, if you go to do a, a doctorate in the United States, you're doing three years of coursework before you even think about writing your thesis proposal. Oh wow! So it's a, yeah, American American universities are very thorough, which I appreciate. Yes, and they're expensive. They're very expensive. <laughs> Father Harrison, yes, uh, I was looking through some of our correspondence around the time of the offer to come on the podcast. Yeah. And you call yourself a Vatican II trad. <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but that actually is probably very apt. I think things yeah. like the pontificate of Benedict Sixteenth is exactly the kind of trad I am. Mm-hmm. Would, uh, please elaborate. Tell us what for the, you know, because when people hear trad, they obviously have a certain, they hear what they want to hear and they have a right. certain person in mind. So the idea of a, a such thing as a Vatican II trad seems off as or, a phrase. Or they'll say, what, you like felt banners in your sanctuary? Is that the kind of trad you are? Right? Yeah, uh, but almost. And we, okay, Zach, you're up. And we could also set the stage just by maybe giving some context um, about Vatican II. A lot of our listeners yeah. have heard of it, but yeah. it's always good to define your terms and, yep. and give some history. Yeah. Why don't I? Do you always want me to start with some history? Yeah, please. Okay. You're you're studying. We're just a bunch of goobers who have microphones. Yeah. <laughs> and this is my area is 20th century Catholic theology. So, um, so it, I, I've actually it's, it's actually been really interesting. The last couple of weeks, I've been reading about uh, Ratzinger's time prior to the council and then at the council. Actually, I'll probably read it through a lens of Ratzinger just because that's where my headspace is at right that's now. Fine. And there are there are worse places to go. Sure. Um, so Ratzinger is it's very interesting. So he was ordained um in the late forties, if I remember correctly. And um bright young star uh, coming out of World War II would of course uh, go on to become Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Yes, exactly. Our listening exactly. Audience. Yes, and that yes. and that young man know. was Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. The 16th, exactly. The current Pope Emeritus. So one of the interesting things I've been fi- so there's there's two ma- major uh there's well there's a okay. Let me back up a little more actually. Early 20th century, you have the modernist crisis, um, which is going on in the church. It starts really in the late 19th century, um, mm-hmm. with especially around the areas of, of um, scripture 
and the nature of and the use of the historical critical method. Right. Um, and so, which high level? That's kind of can you basically that's like a denial of of like miracles and kind right. of a, a, a you're looking at it from a very tight lens. Yeah. Of like miracles can't literally happen and certain things. Right. So a good lens for this debate actually can be found in around the year 2000 in a debate between Ratzinger and Casper, where they're talking about what has priority in the church, the universe, or the particular church. And in the debate, there's actually this whole section where Casper cites a very historicalist view of um, the uh, the church in Acts. Uh, But Ratzinger comes back at him. He says, yeah, but you've ignored the hermeneutics of faith and all of this, essentially. They, you, you can't just approach Scripture as a purely historical document. And this is a, essentially, and, and I think Ratzinger is very right about all this. I think um, that's one of his major fights in his theology is for a hermeneutics of faith, that you can't ignore the historical critical. It has a place, but it's not the be-all, end-all. And in fact, the Magisterium herself um, affirms, uh, through the different papacies of, of the first 50 years of the 20th century, affirms these methods in light of faith. So you ultimately the scriptures are there to communicate revelation to us. That is their purpose. But um, so but you need to know the literal sense and stuff like that to get to the spiritual sense. So, you know, historical critical methods have a place, but they can't be reductionistic to the point that you're denying the actual history historicity of what is being proclaimed there or the elements of faith and miracles and stuff like that. So people like Baltman would actually even go so far as to deny the resurrection and would say it was essentially a experience of enlightenment amongst the disciples, right? <laughs> He's like, yeah. which is so weird. It's like they just came to this sense of, well, Jesus has really risen in our hearts. In our hearts, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, and I mean, some of these things that they claim, it's like imagine anybody being willing to die for that vague of a religion. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and and yet they all were, and so it it, it doesn't, it really doesn't make sense. Like as much as people want to think that the resurrection is illogical, it's also much more unreasonable to think right. that the church, that the faith was this big open-ended question and nobody knew anything at all. And it was all undetermined and vague and right. And write your own story, but people were willing to die for it and get killed for it. Yeah, exactly. Like there yeah. were people willing yeah, and, and people uh, for following it, but what even was it? Yeah. Right. Frank, Frank Sheed has an amazing quote or a really good quote. I like about that. Uh, that whole thing. So he, I have it right here. Uh, to reveal and leave, and then leave men with nothing but their best guess as to all that is contained in its communication would frustrate his purpose in revealing. Mm-hmm. So, so like, uh, yeah, like a very, it's not, it's not going to be some vague thing. It's going to very clearly have like a purpose and a meaning. Right. It's very interesting too that for like this historical critical method, how much how much emphasis they place on the quote unquote historical to the point that they actually in, ignore all material and historical aspects that are in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, uh, like Ratzinger would say that if you take the historical critical method seriously, then no text ever actually communicates anything whatsoever. Um, and I think well, he's he's right there. So yeah, because a lot of times people will say like, oh, it's not like important whether or not Jonah was actually swallowed by a big fish, it's the message of, you know, this and that. And it's like, well, but that message isn't important if it didn't actually happen. Like the idea is that, yes, it happened. And and then from it, we can learn all these other things. But if it didn't happen, then it's Mm -hmm. meaningless as a, 
Yeah. Yeah. Did did Noah's Ark exist? Right. What? Right. You have to anchor these things in actual reality. Otherwise, it's like, okay, so someone just wrote this down, and I'm supposed to think it means anything. And it's about also understanding, like, this is where historical critical does have a place. Well, there's two things that Ratzinger would say that we have to, or there's three things we have to take into account. You have to have, like, what is the genre, like, what is the story itself trying to convey, right? So, for example, like, the creation story in Genesis is not a pure history, it's not meant to be. Um, well, like, and actually, the, I would right. go so far, like, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not meant to be pure history. They are meant to convey a, 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 a truth about who God is and how we relate to him and who we are. But then after that, a real history comes in, right? So that that's important for well, understanding how I mean, to approach I would the text. Say, like, I would say, though, that it's it's hard to look to the church fathers and find a view that the first 11 chapters of Genesis were not also history. But I guess what I'm saying, I'm talking about history, and it's like, um, as like we would read a history textbook today. Right. You're talking about the idea. Uh, you're talking about the idea that seven days weren't seven twenty-four hour days. Right. Or like, it's not. It's not. Um. It's not a method. Like, it's not a. It. It doesn't take the first eleven chapters at the very least would not ta- would not be what we would class be able to classify as a pure history event. Like. Um, the because not only is just genre, I mean, I, but, how, I hear but, you, but but I do but, think that the church fathers kind of beg to differ on that point. I mean, I know that it's not. I don't think it's something to get hung up on, but I, I do think that there is room for that but, belief. I would actually, I would, I would encourage you to read Ratzinger's in the beginning on this, where he actually engages with this issue. Well, um, yeah, but he was two thousand years later. Like, what is he? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> he's he's dealing with this issue around the church fathers too. What's the name okay. of that? What, it's a book. In, it's called In the Beginning. It's four. It's four homilies he gave on the creation story in genesis but the even the church fathers though they don't no no the, the church fathers never like augustine himself argues that it's not meant to be a literal history augustine himself does argue this well was that was yeah. was that when he was like a you know drunken no this is <laughs> was this was this before he got his life together no, after um, he got his life together sorry okay well that's again i don't want to derail on that yeah, yeah. sorry sorry anyways, okay. yeah but i, I guess um, what i was trying to get at though is that it's important to understand like what you're like how you read the psalms is different than how you're going to read um chronicles right they're different sure. yes yeah of course that's, that's right but that actually, reading comes through cool how thing. the church tells us to read it right? yes exactly and, that's, and i was going to say that's the other element you have to take yeah. in how has how has it with the old testament israel and the church and then with the new testament the church how have they received these texts and how has she dealt with them over the history mm-hmm. that tells that gives us uh, an insight into how to interpret a text as well absolutely and we need to take that seriously right we always need to take that seriously um right. so anyways and it's interesting how something, I mean, I know that's not minor, but how something yeah. like this historical critical method or this way of viewing scripture can kind of capture, can be the sort of linchpin for all of modernism. Like you would you would think it would have a much bigger kind of cause, but really mm-hmm. everything can start to unravel just from getting these these things wrong. Like, you exactly. know, if you, get, if you get all of scripture and you're looking at it wrong, everything else can unravel. And then right. suddenly, why can't we have women priests? And why can't, you know, I mean, all, exactly. all of the, and that's, I think that was interesting is it's Pius X in Pashendi. Um, am I saying that right? Uh, yep. He does a good job, like, identifying the crisis. And the first time I uncovered that, I thought, well, that's too simplistic. And then you do kind of realize, well, you can really take every, every element of this problem and you can yeah. tie it back to like a fundamental misunderstanding of scripture. Right. Um, and how, you know, that doesn't seem like it should translate into, you know, the papacy should, you know, be modernized and there should be women priests and right. the Eucharist is a symbol, but it, it really opens the door to it. And you, it does kind of 
flow from that initial misunderstanding. Right. And I think, so, yeah, so this is what's going on in script. It, it's not just seeping into outside ecclesial uh, bodies and universities. It's seeping into into seminaries and stuff as well. It's becoming a very hot topic, and modernism becomes the buzzword of the first fifty years of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I, I mean, I think we're still, we're there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff that happens in those fifty years that I think we're we're probably going to be dead by the time we start to get a sense of what really went down. Um, to understand before the history, the council? yeah, before the council, because yeah. it's it's like I think we're still too close to it to really like. I'm of the age where I, you know, growing up, most of the veterans of World War II were very much alive, right? It, it's you need that. There's almost you need that historical distance to have a greater objectivity to understand what kind of questions you want to ask and everything. But I think that's definitely a good point because yeah. we see a lot of times in because obviously we're, we're Latin mass, mm-hmm. there the sort of attachment to the '50s, and really by mm-hmm. the time you got to the '50s. They're, they're things were bad so thorough yeah and i mean some things were good i mean yeah we're not going to discount what was but right the, the rot had become very thorough absolutely and, yeah yeah i mean it's not like the 60s i mean where do you think all these people came from and mm-hmm. that really does um i mean it it unfolds over a period of years but yeah it obviously does that first mm-hmm. half of the 20th century and like i've always said while this is more of a secular event um you world war one i think is the real defining event of the 20th mm-hmm. 20th century we always point to everything as like post-world war ii the post-war yeah. but i really think world war ii is kind of a byproduct of world war one absolutely um, but if you look at the way that the church was excluded from the, the the peace treaties for the first world war um you you do see a big shift in how the world approaches the church yeah and i think that that's you know since a big idea of the council, I think, that Pope St. John the Twenty Third said was to, like, was, was, like, open the windows so we can see out and they can see in. Right. Or the the church had had been frozen out of world events in a way yeah. that had not taken place since the founding of, of Christendom. Right. Um, and you, you see that really aggressive, obviously, with the loss of the papal states, mm-hmm. the tragic event of the 19th century. And then the then you kind of see it continue as they you know the church has just kind of become irrelevant mm-hmm. to world events at least mm-hmm. according to the secular rulers it's sort right. of there to say nice things but yeah. like we're not going to have the pope or his his envoy at our peace treaty because you know the, he's a religious guy we're a secular guy and these are separate yeah so sorry continue yeah, yeah no no that's no that, that's I think I I totally agree I think uh, and I think the church is still kind of reeling. From how to understand her new position in the world, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and, yeah, and, I there, and I think you know, I remember when I did the Terch Millennial Seminar, uh, Father Jimba was talking about like the pendulum swing of the relationship between church and quote unquote state. Not that you know states haven't existed for two thousand years, but you know nations and whatever. And it kind of does swing sometimes. The church gets more involved in secular rules. Sometimes she gets less involved. And they're not all, you know, we, we, there's not a really a moral judgment to that. It's just she relates differently to the world. And, and that's yes. just the way it is. We have to get used to the new way we relate and how we relate to the world now. It's going to be very different now than it is in 100 years. Right. And that's just, and like that's the, just, the that's just the process of history. Right. Well, and that's, you know, the integralist position that, that we take is basically that the relationship will ebb and flow, but it, it should properly ordered be dictated by the church, not by the state. Um, and so it would be, you know, the the line has to draw somewhere. And currently, the majority position is that the state draws the line and, you know, kind of 
tells the church where it fits into society, whereas we believe the church should do that and the state should receive that from the church. Um, and, you know, we know that that's mm. not being realized fully today, but that's kind of the, it's not a, it, integralism isn't what we're always kind of beating on about, doesn't define a specific way that the church and states relate, you know, down to the wire. It really comes right. down to the fact that the relationship is with the church. And throughout history, you have so many examples of the church exercising restraint and, you know, uh, urging the priests to step aside from you know matters of the civil governments and and this and that and so you know the church has shown that that the church is better at at kind of defining what's what's Caesar's and what's God's mm-hmm. than Caesar right and so it, that's that's the main thrust of that position now obviously when all the states of the world have essentially rejected that like you have in the 20th century yeah like where does what does the church do when when it's you know kind of powerless and it's you know right I mean, it has well i think yeah i'm not different she has influence yes and i think uh i could uh i could go on a whole tangent around integralism but i'll maybe i'll leave it for today (laughs) 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 well just that this my the guy i wrote my master's thesis on was on maurice blondel who was a strong critic at least or at least of french integralism yeah as it was portrayed in the early 20th century with action francaise um Mm -hmm. But that's yeah. That's a whole. That's a whole other. That's a whole other podcast. That's a whole yeah. other podcast. Well, that's what's funny. <laughs> so, is like that. Yeah, and just that. That is a specific one that it's interesting. Yeah. Does get a lot of like the Holy Father himself calls that example out as like what not yeah. to do. So I'm always yeah. like, all right, it's integralist. We have to look at that example and not follow it. Right. I mean, there's a reason Maxion Francaise was condemned by Pius XI. Yeah, movements. You know. Yes. And that's so, my favorite. That's my favorite twentieth century pope, right there, Pius XI. The eleventh, interesting. Oh yeah, Big yeah. Guy. This 11th a little heaven, I say. <laughs> little side thing is when I was doing my research, I found this. I found this like obscure footnote that pointed me to an article where I found that Pope Pius XI wrote the Archbishop of Aix, which is where Maurice Blondel was teaching in that diocese, because at the time when stuff like Pichenian stuff was being released more Blondell was worried like am I am I a modernist because he was a man of the church he wanted to be a, the heart of the church if and you have people, to ask okay sorry yeah well no no but mm-hmm. the people were and people were out there in articles saying Maurice Blondell is this is you know this part of Pichendi is attacking Blondell and stuff like that and the Pope wrote the Archbishop of Aix personally to say please let uh, Monsieur Blondell know that we approve of his work we are grateful for the work he does in the church and that we want him to continue it so that little Dang. private letter from the Pope was, I thought, that's kind of cool. That is yeah, cool. we, for our podcast, we actually get those letters, too. I'm oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, the, the Holy See thanks for, you for the Roman Circus pod. No, I'm just kidding. Signed Frank. Um, yes, yeah, signed Papa Frank. Um, Papa Frank. Okay. All right. I veered uh, you way off course, we, so it's all good. Vatican Council. <laughs> so, yeah, just quickly then, uh, summarizing. Sure. So you have modernism. Uh, to define modernism, as we did in our clerically speaking podcast, is it's the denial of mediation. That that is that is a great way to sum up mm. what, is, what what Pius X is talking about in Pascendi. There are no miracles in Scripture. The resurrection can't have happened. God can't enter the world through the incarnation. Um, the the Eucharist is just a symbol and nothing more, um, and so on and so forth. These when you take it's essentially saying that God and the world cannot relate with each other. 
And that is a very enlightenment position. This is why Kant is such an important figure to fight against, uh, because really this is all rooted. We in We try Kant's. not to swear on this show, but you can you can talk about <laughs> Kant if need be. I'm sorry. I know. I I just discovered the other day. I'm going to have to read Kant for my doctoral thesis, and oh, I no. had, I screamed. Oh, I we'll screamed. pray for you. Thank you. Please pray for me. So this is what's going on in the church. There is, see, so and, and I think it was very important that you brought up the two world wars because I do think, in a way, they are the. We are dealing, there is a spirit, like there was a spiritual toll that was taken that we haven't even begun to address yet, almost. Um, when oh, you're killing, sure. when you're killing other human beings in the millions as a, as mm-hmm. a civilization, and it also brings up, I think, existential questions. Where, why would God allow such a horror to happen? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, uh, coming out of the war, you start to see Catholicism taking on a different tone. Now, just a little excursus to the side here. At the same time, in the early 20th century, for about the first 50 years, you have the liturgical movement going on, which is yeah. doing things like the people are giving responses at Mass, which is what usually the altar server would do. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Um, they were giving out missiles to people in the Masses and stuff like that, so they could read along in the English what was in the Latin on the other side. Little right. things like this. The early 20th century had this big thing about like external um, uniformity, like signifies unity of intention, and so that's right. where you start to see the the need to have the responses and how like that's like super important, and just the, the idea that that means something kind yeah. of originates there. It's not like a. I think we kind of take that for granted now, but like mm-hmm. the idea that that everybody standing and saying something in unison, mm-hmm. like matters is a, is like a 20th century idea yeah well we hardly yeah. even say it in unison with any vigor anyway these days oh i know oh i know it's so funny when people like say oh we you know we need to sing so we can you know participate in the mass and then you go to mass and half the people aren't even picking up a hymnal or whatever mm-hmm. right so, so yeah like... <laughs> and like at the tlm you don't at the tlm you don't make the responses right by by verbal right you know like no the high mass you do no, I mean, you may be in Phoenix, but Ooh, the, wow. realistically, Gosh. there's no rubrics for the people. No, I got right. you. I got you. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the old mass, your participation is interior right. primarily. And right. there's and certain customs of standing and kneeling and sitting, but yeah. they're not actually lined out anywhere. Right. And they're not binding, quote unquote, other than that you would yeah. kneel when the Eucharist is exposed. Right. And I think, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing because, I mean, really, that is... What the council is that, uh, just jumping ahead a little bit. That's what the council tried to emphasize. It's not about external participation; it's about internal participation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was uh, like because very interesting. If you talk to people who were raised, like like one of my professors at seminary, he was raised in uh, in the forties and and around and going a lot in masses and stuff like that. And he would tell me that no, you, you weren't even like. It's actually a fruit of the liturgical movement and the council to talk about this interior participation. It was not a very common experience for people prior to the council. Well, that's that's interesting because like a lot of like my missal has quotes yeah. from like popes before that explaining right. like Pius X because he's kind of mistranslated and sort of encouraging the kind of uh, the the conversational stuff mm-hmm. dialogue mass when he's talking about being um, praying the mass. Um, as opposed to praying at mass and different things, mm-hmm. so that, it's inter- I guess maybe that message didn't get off the ground prior right. to the council. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, and then so one of the things that Ratzinger notices early on, and it's something I'm really starting to notice 
as I do more research, in the late 40s and early 50s, there was a growing discontent about the state of Christian formation in Europe. And actually, even reading Fulton Sheen, he says some very similar things. His critique is around the unison between, after the war, you see um, an, emer- an emerging emerging strong middle class. Mm-hmm. And he, he calls this the unity with bourgeois Catholicism. Or he calls this bourgeois Catholicism and this unity with, with kind of a bourgeois way of living. Yeah. That as long as you, you get a nice house over your head, you do all these nice things... And as long as you, you're a, you're a good person who goes to mass on Sunday, then you're kind of good. You call it and, you call it bur- oh, yeah. bourgeois Catholicism. I call it yeah. Protestant Catholicism. Yeah. Well, yes. it's funny because that yeah. mindset is so thoroughly still the thing. Like, yeah. Today and it, I, yeah. I, I, the Marxists actually are pretty funny at dismissing just how trivial the bourgeoisie's like concerns are day to day, and right. like they'll they some of them are hardcore enough to like they'll look at like. Um, like recent movements with like marriage equality or gender stuff and kind of say, yeah, yeah these are just frivolous bourgeoisie things. Like this is not like, mm-hmm. so it's, it's interesting that Frank, she kind of shares that problem with like basically middle caste, middle class Christians being so, um, I guess sterile, like just yeah. not having any depth to their faith. Yeah. And so that's happening already in the forties. Mm-hmm. That's already happening you, in the forties. Do you think, do you think that's the, because of what was going on with the world wars and there was a sense of security about having a roof over your head and all that? Do you think it kind of... I think of, there's that. I think it's also, um, it's in a way to, God's not going to assuage my suffering, so I have to find other ways to assuage it. Gotcha. Mm. Oh, interesting. And you, you, and you do have spreading like the, the Freud stuff and like, yeah. um, which a lot of it's fascinating despite being like laughably false. Um, but an idea that again everything is the material and that mm-hmm. like it's not like a spiritual question with man it's all on the level of like physiology and dreams mm-hmm. and you know that kind of stuff so th- yeah. you do have all these competing forces kind of attacking yeah. the catholic identity right and and i think like this is uh, church life journal had an article a couple months ago about this around like that for the ancient and medieval world the spiritual was the most real thing and it's only a very modern notion that the material is the most real and that's a very hard and again that's kind of rooted in modernism okay the material is the only real thing uh so if that's if it's the only real thing then miracles incarnation sacraments those are all just made up things to try to imbue meaning into something that's just really just pure matter so this is and that's a very hard obstacle to overcome when you're trying to engage with the culture and proclaim the gospel to them right it's it's like a it's a it's a wall you come up against yeah how i mean how can you how can you debate something that's not tangible to something that's very tangible right like it's, well you have to show them that yeah, yeah that's where like, that's where i think apologetics needs to turn in mm-hmm. a way we got to stop worrying about what the protestants are saying because frankly a lot of protestants are starting to rediscover sacramentality and uh and well yeah it's just that the sacraments they're discovering are like the sacrament of reiki and yoga and palm reading <laughs> But no, I'm, t- I'm talking it, about like no, no. I'm talking like good Protestant scholarship. Oh, okay, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. On on like like no like that there is like very strong Protestant scholars who have been the cause of many converts to Catholicism, even though they haven't converted yet because of their view on sacramentality. It's been it's really like I'm reading I'm listening to a book by James K. A. Smith right now, a little anti intellectualist, but um, very strong on rediscovering a sacramental worldview. Hans Boersma is like one of the principled 
Protestant theologians right now, and it's because of him that um, many, 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 many people have become Catholic, even because he's trying to say Protestants were wrong for rejecting a sacramental, a sacramental worldview. Now, this is where so this actually ties everything in here in a way because um, if if so, this is the world. The world is kind of crumbling around it after the war. Uh, there is you have absentee fathers like through death and everything you have people who are suffering from PTSD even though they might not have known what it was at the time all like it was it was kind of like in the 50s the church was kind of spiritually destitute absolutely you can go into the whole you can still kind of talk about the whole modernist crisis which was a big theological problem the theological debates of the 20s to the 50s but that's like another story but I, this is why I think that my, my this is where I actually get to the heart of why I think the council is important it not just um, it kind of buoyed and helped deepen our understanding of sacramentality and it said to be sacramental is to be Christian and we need to embrace this too too sweet we need to we, this needs to be our identity as Christians because if we don't um, we are going to lose who we are as Christians. Um, when you read the documents of the council, they're very emphatic, especially, I would, I mean, if you, um, I would put a little asterisk next to Gaudium et Spes because it depends on what you're reading in Gaudium et Spes. Uh, but um, uh, yeah. Lumen Gentium, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium and Dei Verbum are exquisite documents that help us, that help us deepen the idea that by our nature, we are sacramental beings. And to be a Christian is to be the fulfillment of what it means, is that this whole sacramental worldview, if you will, is at the heart of what it means to be Christian. Mm-hmm. But they don't seem to have, um, like, led to a greater awareness of this. Like, you kind of see after this, like, a collapse of, especially the sacrament of penance, uh-huh. And I mean, you sort of see Catholics becoming less sacramental, and then obviously, like adopting customs that make, you know, communion very informal. Right. And, I mean, so that, that's where I'm wondering. Like, my critique of the council as a whole is basically saying that, like, the documents do say things, um, but the overall effect it just didn't take but, off. Yeah, that's kind of the question. Sorry right. to jump in on yeah. that, yeah, no. but that's kind of the question I have always had is. Mm-hmm. There, there had to have been, there had to have been a a, a diversion somewhere, right? So there, mm-hmm. like it to me, I, I heard someone describe it. I forget where, but like, it was maybe it was Ross Douthat in his book Bad Religion, which I reference quite a bit. But he's he makes some only sort book of, Matt's read. It's the only really the only book. Yeah, I read that and I read a sports book once. But um, <laughs> and Maurice Moose, Maurice Moose, Maurice Moose, written by copy. Adam Baker. Buy it on Amazon. Um, <laughs> he he talks about the 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 tapping open of the door that basically led to the kicking open of the door, right? So like right. which I've always thought was interesting because it shows that somewhere someone got an idea and no one questioned it and that kind of led to so so what as far as cuz you yeah, what where was the diversion point? And I I think in a way we have to be okay with recognizing that again. I don't. Like, I don't think I have a perfect answer for that yet. Because sure. I'm, I'm not denying that a diversion. Well, happened, I meant it I more guess, as right? like right? A, a thing to ponder. Really, like a not that you had a specific yeah. answer, but a... I think I think part of it. This is just me just 
pondering into oblivion here, but um, <laughs> just spitballing here. Yeah, just spitballing. I really think people who wanted to stay weren't for what, one reason or another were part of the they were the victims of this spiritual desolation like Ratzinger has a great article from 1952 called The New Pagans Mm -hmm. where he's reflecting on his pastoral experience in a parish he's not even an academic yet he's writing this article recognizing the paganism uh, in Christianity and how we've lost a proclamation of the cross and of our our being um, that we are sinners who are essentially deserving hell Mm-hmm. And that we need a cross to save us from that, he says. That's all been lost. So when you when you understand like that, preaching and teaching in 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 the forties and fifties at least, and maybe the thirties. It's hard to to say, but the forties and fifties for sure. Um, the teaching that was coming out at that time was banal, mm-hmm. was not fulfilling to people, and yet they hung on to this claim that I got to be a Catholic still. And so they... Cultural took, Catholicism almost. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, cultural Catholicism. And it's, it's. I mean, I'm not trying to blame, because I think for a while that whole idea that you show up to church, you pray, and you do your duties as a Christian in the world worked for a long time. I mean, and, it, and it I got me it, through 30 years of life. So. Right. Yeah, it's still, it's yeah. still a working model. It, it can be, except... We're so inundated by communication today. People need to be more informed than they ever did before. Not because they want to be informed, sure. but because they're throwing so much data, they need to have right. a deeper sense of things. Right? Yeah, I mean, like on yeah. in, like kind of what you're saying, like on an individual yeah. strategy. Like if you yeah. choose to be a Catholic in this way, yeah. that can work. But like oh, most absolutely. people are craving. They yeah they have itching. Yeah. So I, I can say this because my parish is older, and so they'll never listen to a podcast in their life. Mm. Um, we'll see. But my. <laughs> my experience of my parishioners who are the 80% over 70 and who are all um, children during the 40s and 50s. These are people who, if I ask them, what are the seven sacraments, they'll look at me blankly. Wow. Because they won't... I mean, They're sometimes like, they'll um, say holding wait, hands wait. at the Our Father. Um, well, not that, but they'll the, just they the, won't. No, I know. I'm just they kidding. won't have. But they won't know how to give. They won't know how to give word to basic things of Christian life. Mm-hmm. It's not that they doubt them; they just don't know how to give word to them. That's an interesting point because, like, some of the older catechisms, like obviously the Baltimore Catechism, predates. You know, it goes back into the 19th century, mm-hmm. but it has these very easy to remember formulations mm-hmm. that, like, the newer catechisms take paragraphs and paragraphs mm-hmm. to explain. And that's why I always tell people, I'm like, well, they're really not, like, if you were to take the U.S. Compendium for Adults yeah. or the Baltimore Catechism, there's not really a conflict between them unless right. they're talking about discipline things like mm-hmm. fasting for communion. But, like, the Baltimore Catechism gives you a quip that you'll never forget. The, Right. Other book gives you a paragraph that you will not remember after you turn the page. Right. So it's like, not that it's bad to have on the shelf, but it's yeah. not as helpful for like, if you want, I mean, I think there is value in being able to just kind of quip off, oh yeah, to know, love, and serve God in this life. And well, be it's very interesting. In the next. This is why Ratzinger put together a compendium of the, when he was Benedict, he put together the compendium of the catechism. Because he wanted to do a more question answer format for catechism. Yeah, but Which, so I mean, it's still it's still a little paragraphical, but right. uh, but, well, but it's, that it shows you itself is is a minor miracle just yeah. that it happened. Like we yeah. we we've always said like it's good to have. It's not always the, it's not always the most helpful. Yeah. Um, in terms of like a learning aid, 
Um, but yeah, the fact that it came out because I don't think people realize how widely divergent some of the ideas were and to have the catechism come out and, and be, you know, orthodox, um, was not, I mean, obviously we know the Holy Spirit guides the church, but you know, if people were going to bet on it, I don't think they would have expected it to come out how it did. Right. Um, Right. So especially the time period. Yeah. So it's, um. But so I think I, my my guess is that people were trying to find meaning for Catholicism, but they had no frame of reference for it. And you have, I think this is where it's just more of um, unfortunate historical circumstance. The council ends right in the midst of the beginning of the revolutions of the 60s and 70s. Um, like the sexual revolution and stuff like this, right. and, and, and the, the triumph hippie move, of the, the hippie, the hippie movement, and all this stuff. Like it's, uh, it is very. It's I think, and so people had this very spiritualist view of everything that ignored text. Like in in other words, it became very Boltmanian in the world, <laughs> which said this this this. The real like what it actually says there doesn't really matter. What was really happening was this, and so this is where the idea of a spirit of Vatican II comes around. And mm-hmm. I think I I hate to say it, I really think the reason it got ineffective was not, and and we have like I think it was effective, and that's another thing because we can talk about papacies in a second. But um, where it got ineffective was because it got usurped by a, a kind of a, an almost I want to say a new age agenda that says we look at the spirit of the thing. And it removed any semblance of Catholicism or Christianity or development to it, and it was very heavy-handedly enforced on people. Like when we're only now starting to come out of out of all that, just now, well, like in the last ten years. Right, like a lot of our, you know, listeners, if they attend the new mass, mm-hmm. they receive on the tongue, and it's mm-hmm. it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, like they, I don't think they realize that you know, in the eighties, you could get not just refused, but like scolded in front of everybody yeah. for trying to do that. Yeah. Um, depending on where you were yeah. uh, in the States. And, yeah. you know, every now and then you'll find some priests that won't give communion on the tongue. Yeah. No, but it, but it, until it was reaffirmed as allowed, yeah. Um, the, yeah, I mean, it was heavily enforced. And the weird thing about the spirit is that I've always felt like it, they kind of have that backwards because mm-hmm. like when you say, okay, let's follow when they're like you know talking about lent it's like let's follow the spirit of the law but they're like okay you can have you only have to fast on these two days and you only Mm -hmm. have to do that whereas the spirit is you're supposed to fast like the spirit isn't in in you know even with marriage stuff it's like the spirit of the law is you marry one person until you die yeah so like that's the spirit the legalistic attitude is when you get into like annulments and 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 all this stuff it's like well guys the spirit is this very obvious teaching and then you've like broken it down into a bunch of weird component arguments that are very much more legalistic than we started from well yeah no but you also have to remember jesus doesn't come to destroy law he comes to fulfill it right so law always has we have we can't be anti the spirit like ratzinger has a great article on the unity oh, between spirit law. and law right Sorry, We're constantly proposing. Matt and I, we have all these laws we yeah. come up with. Yes. So, yeah, but I'm just saying... <laughs> a lot like, of people like, end up in prison under our laws. <laughs> so, but I think I think there was a real usurpation of what the council... Because when you read the actual council, like I said, put a little asterisk next to Gaudium at Spes, because there's some good stuff in it. There's some stuff I 
have hesitations towards. Like mm-hmm. Ratzinger talks about some sections being um, blatantly Pelagian, and I wouldn't disagree with him. Uh, but when you read like Sacrosanctum Concilium, first, when you read it, you start to see very quickly that what happened in like the 80s in liturgy in the North America, let's say, is so far from what the council fathers intended. And it's very interesting at the council amongst all the bishops, like there's over 2,000 bishops there, there was almost no debate over the liturgy. It was because part of it is a lot of stuff the council says was already said by Pope Pius XII, trying to confirm in magisterial way, in a magisterial way, the liturgical movement of the 20th century. Oh, and we're, we've, we've lamented that action of right. Pius XII. We always okay. said it, in our universe... If we were seat of a contest, we would cut it off at Pius XI. Right. Um, but we obviously are not seat of a contest. Right. <laughs> right. But we're always funny when we're like, the the Holy Week changes that he confirmed, like, to me, are, like, devastating and, like, how much they, like, wrecked that week. Hmm. Um, but I don't want to digress on right. that. Right. But anyways, but I'm just trying to say, like, it's very interesting at the council. There was no debate almost over the liturgical document. Like, what you see in Sacrosanctum Concilium is not quite verbatim, obviously. There's... There's a committees and stuff like that that break open the text, but it's very close to what was actually presented to the fathers initially. It was the f- it was the first document approved uh, at the start of the council in 1962, and it, the problem. And again, so this is where the history comes into play, right? The problem was how it was implemented, and we can ask questions about leadership decisions on on the part of Paul VI when he's implementing the document. Obviously, the boogeyman of of um, Bunini. Of, Bunini is is a always a hot topic, and I am personally absolutely no fan. Um, so the, you 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 have questions around implementation, and this kind of excessive authoritative um, implementation of liturgical text. Because again, I, I was visiting Father Matt Fish in the summer in D.C., and he found an old 1965 missile. So this is the first missile that the was transitional, published. The yeah, transitional, the transitional missile. missile. It's quite good. <laughs> It's yeah, it, essentially a lot of people do stand that one, like, and there's yeah. w- there's a bishop that even thinks that it should be allowed, um, right. but it's like we don't want to really encourage too much diversity. Like we yeah. like just having the extraordinary form. But right. for anyone that doesn't know, in '65, basically the 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 main core of how the mass is currently, like the, the Latin mass that we go to, was for the most part maintained, but mm-hmm. it was kind of translated into the vernacular, similar right. to something you'd see at like an Anglican ordinariate. And there was the one thing that does shift is that the priest, um, you know, normally if in a high mass, you know, the priest is saying the creed, the choir is singing the creed or mm-hmm. chanting the creed. When the priest is finished, he goes and sits down and everyone else gets to sit down. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 65 missile, the priest has to stand there until the choir's done mm-hmm. singing. Right. And so um, I think he's, I always joke, I'm like, that's really what killed polyphony was that like <laughs> people didn't want to stand for a 20 minute Creed, creed if they if they have to stand <laughs> for the whole thing yeah a five minute um, but anyway. one word credo <laughs> right which is they're beautiful but it's always yeah. funny because a yeah, lot yeah. of the ancient music doesn't lend itself to the 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 kind of participation right. idea because right. again it's like people standing looking around like well what are we supposed to do we can't sing polyphony right and it's 20 minutes long like our knees hurt yeah and so but anyway yeah so yeah and i think like actually what you said there about uh, the ordinary at mass is I, if you read Anglicanorum Chetibus carefully, you see in some very subtle ways, Pope Benedict is implementing this as part of his reform movement for the liturgy. 
it's very much connected with um, Samarum Pontificum in many ways, actually, I think. And I think, I think it's his hope that you look at the, like, I actually think it's his hope that the ordinary at Mass is meant to be a sign of what the council actually intended. I definitely on that, I can agree with you. I yeah. remember thinking, because I grew up Methodist, and so yeah. there was a certain amount of, like, push towards the ordinary because, like, right. they're, like, the Wesleyans are, but so I, it seemed like when they put out the missile for the ordinary, which I think mm-hmm. was accomplished under Cardinal Seurat, um, after Benedict was gone, but, like, the, the, the core of it was there, but it it had yeah. it almost seemed in this sort of like wink wink, like here's what we really wanted mm-hmm. for a, for an English vernacular mass, mm-hmm. and you know we're gonna do it through this channel because that's feasible, mm-hmm. and the ordinary it is because it's self selecting everybody in it's very conservative, mm-hmm. um, and so they could do it, and yeah. I, I do remember thinking that they're like okay this is their like if we had it to do again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's what we'd maybe well, do. Well, no, because when you read Samarum Pontificum, this is Pope Benedict's whole point. Like he, when you read his whole stuff on liturgy, he's very emphatic on the fact that we cannot use the same methods that people used in the '60s to impose all these liturgical changes that have nothing to do with the council or the magisterium, um, because um, what they did actually lost a lot of people, and he he fully admits that, right? But to do to use the same method of just imposing without um, yes. bringing people's hearts along is to is to do it's the same crime. Yeah, it's revolutionary. And the, and the thing with revolutions is they breed backlashes. Exactly. The exactly. Never the church has never really embraced a revolutionary mindset. Like yeah. if you look at the conversion of Rome, mm-hmm. there was no Christian revolution. Right. It was they baptized this empire over this you know span yeah. of centuries, and it was exactly. beautiful. Um, and I've always appreciated that, like, or, you know, that you could not possibly have the Pope come out on the loggia and reinstitute the Latin Mass. It yeah. would, that would be the worst thing. Exactly. I mean, that would not go over well. Right. But I think you can kind of see that people are drawn to it naturally. And I think he yep. trusted, he's like, you know, this ritual was nurtured for 2000, you know, for 1500 years. I think yeah. if I just free it up, people will yeah. be drawn to it and it will, it will do its and, thing. And when you, yeah. And when you read Samarum Pontificum, he actually says that it's his hope that there'll be a sort of dialogue between the two forms of the mass. Yeah, I always laugh right. at that because I'm like, well, what does the new mass have to say? The old mass. But, well, his um, big thing is actually the the calendar of saints. Oh. Um, that's one of he he thinks that he was he was hoping that you know a TLM mass could um, could celebrate a, a Saint John Paul II and stuff like that. Oh, okay, um, right. Like that that was one of his and and his not, other one. Not his other one. Here. I know this is a hot topic with trads, but uh, his other one was hoping that. A, a, a larger lectionary could also be included which, into yeah, which is yeah, cringe. It's it's like it just you want to you like you want to ask these people if they've ever been to I a know. mass. But no, it's that yeah. topic is so funny. I just always tell people we're very fortunate to have Francis, who um, has actually been at least in um, with Americans and with yeah. a lot of groups very lenient, more lenient than Pope Benedict was on the Latin mass. Like he's allowed. Um, well, uh, with him as Pope, we've been allowed to use the pre-55 Holy Week mm-hmm. stuff, which really does, I think, capture, if there's this idea that we have two forms of the Roman Rite, mm-hmm. the post-55 Holy Week is not really, doesn't demonstrate the extraordinary form because it's it's built under the mindset and by the same people who built the ordinary form. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I'm not somebody that says you keep going back and back and back and back, but if you do want to 
say we have a mass that's you know primarily shaped by 20th century thought and we have a form of the mass that isn't mm-hmm. that you would remove the 55 stuff but the lectionary mm-hmm. um i always say like if we were to get you know this hypothetical pope cardinal Seurat, which we mm-hmm. don't expect to happen like even he says this kind of stuff i'm like you guys were lucky like all of the really tratty cardinals have like weird ideas they want to impose on the Latin mass. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. very lucky that Pope Francis has just no interest in it. Yeah. Like he just lets us do it yeah. and he gives us a very long leash to operate yeah. under. Yeah. Our parishes have boomed with him as right. Pope over the last six years. It's, it's worked. Right. Um, like we don't want like Cardinal, no offense right. to Cardinal Sarab. Like he has said similar to rats here, goofy things about, you know, a, a, a three year, like Three-year lectionary, or why well, stop at three? I don't. I don't know if it's like I don't know if it's goofy. That's why I don't want to get into into. I know. I know. You have to but 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 here's the thing. So um, I, but like, and you've seen the dialogue elsewhere as well, right? Like, you know, you, I've been to no masses where priests are wearing berettas. I've seen ad orientum. I've done ad orientum privately. Um, I've I've. Um, you know, you start introducing little bits of chant, and you and you do these things like it's amazing. Like I've I've done a few things in my parish slowly over the last two years. I was actually just like reflecting on it the other day, like, wow, actually, the mass is a lot more reverent. Even like, and it wasn't bad or anything, but it was just like, wow, mass is a lot more even even more reverent now than it was two years ago, just through these little small changes, and it's done amazing good things. And people generally are okay with it if you educate them, let them know what's going on. And you teach them or you give them little hints. Like at Easter last year, I um, I I sang the Ave Regina Chalorum after communion, just as a little solo. Just, uh, you wanted your spotlight. Else. I get it. No, I'm just kidding. No, I did it for a reason. <laughs> no, I know. I got you. I love that. That's, that's yeah, it's you, great. Because do you know what the number one reaction was for people from when, I, when they heard it? No. Oh, Father, I haven't heard anything like that in oh, 50 years. Oh, that's so awesome. Mass. I loved that's it. amazing. I want to hear more of it. Yeah. When I hear that, I'm like, great. I can now go forward and try and find ways to implement that more in my parents, can I, right? Can I make a comment yeah. about chant? Um, yeah. And maybe you can – you know, but the chant in the new mass just seems so – not like it seems like a like novel to me. Like it seems like a more mm-hmm. – it doesn't – I'm I'm not trying to say it's not serious because I think it is. But I think mm-hmm. I think it – I think it kind of sometimes is jammed in there in a way that seems almost off-putting a little bit because it doesn't seem like it's in the flow. And I also, this is an actual question, like do priests in seminary learn chant still? Because it, sometimes they can't, it seems like they don't know how to do it. You know what I'm trying to say? It's like, it's a very good thing, but just the way it's... English doesn't lend itself very well to chant. Right. I, I, my seminary, we had chant instructors. Right. Instructors. I actually, I got, I was very blessed. I had some people fly me out for a week to do a, um, a chant workshop in Chicago in 2008 too. So I, I have more exposure to it, which I'm grateful mm-hmm. for. But our seminary brought people in to teach us chant. Yeah. Um, and like chant, proper chant, not not modern notation. Right. It was well, you know. That. So you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Though? Yeah. And I think, but I, I kind of agree. I think. Um, yeah, it's it is like I think ad orientum is much more effective as a as a as for like opening people up to the yeah sacred. as like right. starting a discussion than I think chant yeah. is and I all I, oh I agree yeah yeah 
I, I would agree with that too because it's I don't know music is such a hot topic in a parish mm-hmm. it's always it's it's always a divisive thing but I think if you could I but I agree I think um, well this is a little interesting thing actually around the council do you want to know why versus populum started of course I want to know as much as I can the well, wasn't second, it from like an incorrect understanding of architecture or something or hit us with the, give us hit us with the facts Saint, father Saint Peter's is not built facing east right faces west right so when the priests would celebrate ad orientum in saint peter's they would celebrate it facing the people now Mm. take this fact and then you're seeing televised masses from saint peter's during the council Uh. and everyone's seeing the pope facing the people what happens they emulate the pope exactly gotcha this is, is a that, theory from uh, a professor from a from a professor in so there's in, in Saint Joseph's well, Seminary. Well, because the in New issue York. is is that you have liturgical directions, and right. so like liturgical east is the the direction everyone's facing. Because there's it's important that you also have liturgical north and south, right? Because the movement of the missile, the missile right. starts in liturgical south, which, which is Israel, and then it, I know you know this. Our listeners, yeah, 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 sorry, you know it starts yeah. in liturgical south, which is on the right side of the altar, and then when it's moved by the the altar boy to the left side. That's moved to liturgical north, and that sort of signifies in, at the gospel the preaching, uh, the opening of the people of God to now include the Gentiles, you know, the Greeks in the in the north. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, our Lord was crucified facing north, right. um, and so there's the that the directions. I've always I've always been told that they were never strictly literal. Of like, the churches need to literally face like geographical east, mm-hmm. but. I, I I know that's debated. Right. So, yeah, this is a theory I heard from a professor at St. Joseph Seminary in New York, and I just found it because they're true. This is the first time really masses are really being televised from Rome. So people are seeing this. I mean, whether why this would have happened or whatever is another question. Mm-hmm. But um, And I'd have, I'd actually, and I'll be honest, I've never actually looked at videotape, so I can't. I'm just basing off what this person said to me. Um, but if that's the case, then that can be a very, you know, people... Uh, doggy see doggy do right no, I mean, so it makes perfect um, sense that it would yeah they would want that i mean i wonder if i guess just enough it just opened it up to that much more of a wide mm-hmm. audience because right. clearly people yeah. have been had been to rome and seen that so right but you know yeah. in the united states uh there are churches built in the 40s and their yeah. original build had the table altar set right. away from the wall and so like while that became a preference after the council and the right. implementation of the liturgical yeah. reform people were doing this already yeah. and you, yeah. there's that elvis movie where there were there were folk guitar masses happening right. prior to the council and and it's also like the whole reason for the altar to be separated was really just for one reason so you can incense the whole altar mm-hmm. <laughs> like that was the reason um it wasn't so that you would celebrate mass uh, versus populum um, but, um, yeah, I think I agree, though. I think facing liturgical East has a greater could do a lot more because then people like why do people hold their hands out for the Our Father? Because they see Father doing it. That's that's, that's the, the only one, reason. That's the only reason. That's the one thing that gets me. Like, I try not to be one of these guys. I, I have a lot of issues in my life where yeah. I sweat a lot of small stuff that I shouldn't. Yeah. Because I'm in. Yeah, we can talk. About it. But the when I see people raise their hand in mass, I. Mm-hmm. It gets me because it 
that's the I know the only reason they're doing it is because they see the priests and they want to because like the act is the act of itself that a layperson does has absolutely no yeah. meaning and does nothing right right and to me I get slight, I get kind of frustrated because I I and I don't want to speak for how people why people do it but to me it just seems mm-hmm. like they people think if they're not doing it they're not praying which right. cuts in which. That's why yep, it frustrates me thing. because it we can't associate we can't let our prayers hang on whether or not we're doing the we're trying to do yeah. a reverent thing like the reverence yeah. comes from a reverent prayer not from a reverent side action, action. right right well, exactly. not from how we feel right like yeah right. we're you know we're morbidly depressed on this podcast and so we can't rely on feelings <laughs> right. to, to hinge our faith yeah but it, yeah. but that's the thing it's 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 I don't. I don't want to say it's a bad thing that people rate like peace be with you. And also with yeah. you, we lift up our hearts and people are lifting up their hands. I don't want to, I, I don't want to say that's a bad thing, but it's such, right. it's such an inconsequential, non-meaningful, right. meaningless thing that. And the reason it's not meaningful is because they're only doing it for one reason, because pre- I mean, we are, we are instructed to actually make the gesture of a lifting up our hands as a priest. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the people don't have to do that in response. Well, but it's yeah, and it's another thing where like, and I've got people that do full extended upward arms. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, see, I know. I see it. I seen it. Yeah, yeah. I see like it. full, I seen it. full high V. It. But it's the yeah. other thing too of like the when for kids masses when the father blesses them and people in the congregation hold out their their hands oh, I know. too. I'm like, no, 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 gotta, no, 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 no. You, you're no, no, you're no, giving no. them yeah. demons, bro. Like you're you're yeah. you're not blessing them. Like we just because we see. This is the main gripe. Just because you see a priest do it doesn't mean you should do it, right? Exactly. And it, and that's my rant. My rant. Well, is then over. we could go into a topic on a lot of things where that's especially applicable. But yeah, um, we I'm just kidding. keep on. Um, yeah, sorry. Keep on getting off Vatican II um, stuff. But just, I mean, this is all. I think this is all because here's the thing. Well, I think a lot of people though will say, and I think this is where you and I disagree, yeah. is that the solution is to you know dig deep into the documents and and finally give them a proper implementation whereas my kind of view is like well you know maybe just recognize that a lot of that stuff was you know by the 60s for the 60s and we don't live in that world anymore and so you know let's just try to move on like let's take a broader view and just try to kind of move forward um you know not necessarily giving these documents more weight than like give me your definition of tradition tradition is basically what is passed from one generation to the next which is why i always tend to kind of cringe when people think something's more traditional because it's older it's like well but it that old thing wasn't passed on and so it it's not traditional right and so when you go digging in and you find oh it's actually more traditional to blah 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 it's like well you know if it was more traditional then people would have known like generations would have known about it and they would have thought to hand it on to the next generation right they didn't right and so, like you're, yeah. So you're you're moving away from the idea that tradition equals it's old, essentially, because it's old, it's traditional. That's right. you're not the, you're not saying. Yeah, I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, okay, good. I think that's a very. And so you, you would you argue? Worms. Would you argue that tradition develops? Um, yes, I think that that's okay. a safe thing to say because we love all of the amazing like accretions to right. the mass and how they have this. It's like this family. You know, it's like yeah. the family cookbook that you keep adding little recipes to, right. and scribbling in the margins, yep. and it's it, everybody gets their. You, you bring everybody with you. That's actually a great analogy. I'll have to keep that in my head 
for that's a good analogy. I like that. Thank uh, you. But you know, you want to know something? You just you just gave voice to Dave Verbum. What I you take just it back, said? I'm just kidding. <laughs> what you just said was not a definition of tradition prior to this. Prior to the council. I. Uh, that seems. I mean, it, that seems unlikely, just because of it. It sort of like un, that's how history unfolded, though. I yes, you're right. But guess what? But I, the idea of history and theology really starts to take hold in the '40s. Like, like so. For example, like what you what you just said is a very Ratzinger Ratzinger uh, thing to say around history. Uh, that was not included in the reflections on what the nature and meaning of tradition is in, in a ma- on a magisterial level until the council. Okay, so yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Of, that's yeah. interesting to know because a lot of yeah. people they're like, well, you know, I was talking. It was actually to a good Protestant friend of mine. Yeah. About I was trying to explain liturgical thing to him, and he's like, well, you know, what would be the closest thing to what the early Christians did? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that isn't really the goal here to like bring together a committee to assemble right. a, 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 a sort of larping of the first century. Um, the idea is what has been handed. Down. Exactly. We, you know, right. we receive that. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, so I yeah. I kind of assumed that I didn't realize that that hadn't really been formalized. That's interesting. Yeah. So Derry Verboom, like actually, that's my favorite doc. That I would say that and Lumen Gentium are my two favorite favorite documents. It's um, funny. Mine because of Thomas Pink and like his incredible work. Mine is Dignitatis uh, Humanae, which yeah. I'm sure uh, you would not think it's that, but like it's fascinating when read through thomas pink's um footnotes okay cool yeah and i haven't like my my work has been around like the four main documents more personally right, right? so especially like especially Barry because like ratzinger had a huge hand in writing that document like i'm actually discovering just how important he was to that document we wouldn't have the document because the the first document that was given like the the working text that was given to the fathers they tossed it out but that would have been the normal magisterial thing to say, the initial document that was given to people. And again, it's not its not a rejection of what came before. It's a deepening, right? That's what tradition does. It deepens things. And so Ratzinger, I mean, Ratzinger was actually very influenced by Newman on his idea of tradition. And um, and Newman and, and, uh, and Bonaventure. Um, so... Newman's fantastic new saint. Yes, exactly. Saint 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 John Henry Newman. What a great thing to say. So um, I just so I'm just saying I, I use that as an example because I think for most Christians we would actually hold what Dave Verbum has to say, but we because of we don't we didn't exist before the council. Uh, we weren't even a glimmer, and our, par- our parents weren't even glimmers in their parents' eyes. Maybe right. So the Matt is uh, actually pretty old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we 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 don't have the experience of understanding mm-hmm. how tradition would have been understood beforehand. And so we are that is a positive contribution I would say of the council or the point I made earlier in the podcast about this idea of interior participation. Again, it it got manipulated like I mean I'm sure people might be familiar with this trope the the phrase that is often translated into English as active participation. Right. The Latin is actuoso which means actual participation. So it is a it, that the idea of an interior participation that was actually a big that was a big contribution of the liturgical movement. This idea that you you're not just a passive observer at mass, but you're someone who is present at Christ's sacrifice, and that Christ wants to give you a gift of 
of really being a because the whole church is offered up in that sacrifice and so you as a member of the church is offered up in that sacrifice and to kind of internalize that is a good thing that is a fruit of the council but again it, and it the liturgical like there movement, was a greater but, awareness of this prior right. to the council maybe if it was just not worded as such because like, i think it wasn't worded as such and i think i mean here's the thing most of the people who pushed active participation were the people who grew up in the church prior to the council. This, this idea of activism in liturgy and that we have to do all these things and misinterpreted right. it completely, busy, right? kind of busybody. Yeah, this busybodying is, what which am, is what not... What about me? If I'm not doing anything, I'm important. Yeah. But I'll, I know that's I'll, not I'll, all there was. Hey, I've had... To look at again, because I, I don't think anyone in my area is ever going to listen to podcasts, period. Catholic podcasts. Um, I, I had a massive debate with my with the teachers at my school when I said to them and I recognize I was even making a bit of a stretch here but I'm you know I'm trying to change things slowly when I said that we have when we have mass you have to be baptized to read at mass and yes yeah and yes thank you that that seems like a very reasonable thing for a Catholic priest to say you would think I was saying Heil Hitler (laughs) oh really I oh it hour and a half I actually I should have walked out earlier and said, "Guys, this is the way it is. I'm out." But well, these an hour and have a half, like the fervency of like ISIS with some of the yeah. ideas, though. Like, yeah, they, they'll just like die on this. Cross yeah, of like so. No, none, 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 do you have unbaptized people wanting to read? By the way, or is it was this we have hypothetical? Well, here, here's the thing too. I mean, this is a whole other thing. Teachers like to prop up their students as weapons for their own ideological positions. No, and I think because <laughs> because I haven't had a single kid complain to me since we've instituted this policy. And no parent has ever complained to me, but they'll say the parents and the kids are saying this to us. And I say, then they can come talk to me, and we. Do I can they talk know to that them. you do baptisms and that they're free? Yes, they do. And I'm saying, yeah, it's just, but this is the, but this is the thing, right? So there was a real, and I, and I, this is my thing. I don't know why such a rampant miseducation happened, but at the same time, if you look at towards the papacies of like John Paul II, you look towards the papacy. I would, like, I think Benedict. In the, there's two things Benedict's going to have done in the long term. I think he did a lot of good things liturgically in his both his papacy, like he was trying to work things out a bit more, and not so much even through policy, but through example, right? Uh-huh. Uh, like, I, if you go to I, when I go to churches now, almost every church I go to ten years ago I never saw this. Now, anytime I see a bishop at a mass, there's always seven candles. Oh, interesting! I never saw that ten years ago, but that was Benedict. Benedict started to really put that practice back into play. You didn't and people see that imitated 10 years it. ago in the TLM because none of the bishops were, they were too afraid to be seen exactly, at, exactly. at the TLM, but now yeah. some of them even do it openly. Yeah, um, exactly. So, and I think that I, is I, very I mean, interesting. Yeah. So, did you win this battle of um, you have to be baptized to be a lector? Oh, yeah, because if they want me to show up for Mass, um, this is what's going to happen. Well, and that's we we're we're big on this. so okay we and Matt and I have talked about this. So we would say that the structure of the TLM itself, the like the liturgical actions reaffirm the priest's role as a leader in the church, right? And that like there is something to be said about the the involvement of lay people up on the altar proclaiming right. this and doing that and doing that and the other. That then when you then go back to do business as a parish, suddenly the lay people think that like they get a vote and the the pastor gets a vote and it's right. like actually like traditionally the 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 vicar didn't even get a like it was an right. absolute monarchy under the past i mean he's right. and in a way canonically parish. that's still set up right that's the way it's still set up 
it's not but being I think, affirmed right. in the liturgy. This is kind of one of the few arguments that I make about like some of the one of the bigger problems with with like orientations and how you're facing and yeah. and who's does what is that it's not reaffirming the priest's leadership role in the liturgical action, and you can see that then spill over into every other aspect right. of parish absolutely. governance. Absolutely, absolutely, um, and so that's why I think. I mean, I think a good pastor will always listen. Because a good pastor wants to do everything he can to bring people along. And you should. You should do. Because it's not their fault sometimes that they've been miseducated about things or whatever, right? So you have, to, you, have a, you have a due diligence to try and do what you can to bring people along. And if it's not against the essentials of faith and morals that's happening in liturgy, you, you have to take your time to change things. Yeah. Um, you have to, because human freedom doesn't, again, we talked, like we said earlier, revolutions don't fix anything. They just create right. greater reaction. So it, the best thing is to try and bring people along. Um, but in the end, it's like, if something is, it's con- like, I actually, I would say that, you know, non-baptized people reading at mass is actually contrary to the nature of the liturgy itself and actually is presenting. It's not just that. It's also presenting a symbol that's, that is actually contrary to the liturgy, that it's for Catholics. It's for people who are baptized. This is the whole point well, of the liturgy. It, the liturgy right? becomes a, it becomes less about the sacrifice and more about the desire of the human being, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you, you have, you do it. And I, like I actually, I said to them, like, listen, I know that the way I went all about this actually wasn't perfect. And I've, I've learned from this now, but here I am talking to you about this, but it, I didn't implement this right, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Yeah. At right? the end of the day, I'm still right. And you're still wrong. So um, even if I it's like, said it nice. Right. But, but this is, we have this, and I don't know, like, I don't know where this activism came from, but if you, and I, I do worry about like our reactionaryism too amongst the presbyterate um, as well. But at the same, like I really hope like that my my and I think like this is like me a boomer fa- reactionary. Like no, the people still clinging to like the 2010 and prior translations of the mass. No, like there's a react like there. I would say there is sometimes and I put the again with all the necessary quotations sure. and caveats. I think there's sometimes a trad reactionaryism to in the presbyterate sometimes, especially amongst younger priests. Um, like I've seen stuff on Twitter. Like, okay, I know the Pope made a comment about rigid priests and Saturnos. Okay, but the Pope's from South America. He makes he's not saying the Saturnos bad. He's just saying he's making a rhetor- he's making a rhetorical flair to make a point because that's how South right. Americans speak, right? He's not saying Saturnos bad or that you have to have a Saturno, you're a rigid priest or that or whatever. But my gosh, all of a sudden I see all these pictures of priests on Twitter putting their Saturnos on in solidarity. I'm like, guys, that's yeah, not the with point. You on that, like, you know? we were like, hey guys, like if the if the Pope just came out and said, because I mean, rigidity is a problem, it is a problem. Um, I don't I don't know that it's the biggest problem, no. but I, I've and I I've said this in articles that you know the warnings that Pope Francis gives about rigidity are really important to listen to. Absolutely, and I don't I don't believe that that the trad and when i say trad i'm i'm yeah. kind of referring exclusively to latin mass communities yeah. like i don't think rigidity is uniquely our problem but no, it's not. we should be on guard about it cuz it could be anyway the if you're trying to prove that you don't have like that you are mentally um fluid and that you're you're fine yeah. psychologically normal um yeah. starting a kickstarter to buy hats because the pope mentioned it is really not proving your argument like you're exactly really not, exactly no, that and yeah, the proudly rigid. I would, I, I like to call them proudly rigid online <laughs> trolls for or prots. Um, but the, <laughs> I love it. Sorry, that's no, hilarious. It, it, 
it is that is such a like I and like again as a big fan of the Saturno. Yeah. Um I was like, guys, I'm not gonna like if you didn't I think I tweeted about it, I was like, if you if you decided to become obsessed with the Saturno because of a comment the Pope made like you are not a serious person. It is yeah. the most sorry to offend. Yeah. It is the most white of all the white people problems there possibly can be. <laughs> it really like it is truly like there are people. What is the quote, Kim? There are people dying. What did yes? That's the, the when Kim. So uh, do you watch the Kardashians? Have they have they made it to Canada? Does Canada keep uh, up no. with the Kardashians? Father, they probably do. I just don't. There's a famous episode where Kim gets thrown into the ocean and her diamond earring falls off and she's like crying hysterically like one of my diamond earrings just fell into the ocean and her sister goes Kim there's people that are dying (laughs) and it's a good it's a good gif and it's just like this perfect thing so there's some (laughs) yeah if you're if you're worried like the hat uh, I don't. I don't even yeah. want to talk. About I mean, the was, yeah. like, did I love that comment from the Holy Father? I, I don't. He wasn't talking to me though. Like, I, do yeah, I, exactly. I don't have to have an opinion on it. Yeah. And like, my view of the Saturno is not impacted by it. Exactly. Exactly. But so it, that's my thing. Respectful to yeah. Like so it's like these bra burning feminists are now yeah. like the Saturno. Where you know, I mean, it, it's yeah, exactly. This, this brain worm. Yeah. yeah. So that's my thing. I think that there there is a bit of reactionaryism like that, and that which I don't think is healthy. Uh, and I don't know. I maybe it's because I I'm really happy with my seminary education. It's, no seminary is perfect. I had a couple props. I'm like, eh. Um, but like my seminary formation was really good, and it really emphasized the importance of the council. But I look at like I look at the priests that came out of our seminary, and I would say ninety percent of them are fantastic preachers who take the teachings of the church seriously and who take the magisterium seriously and who take the council seriously but want to live the council uh with, with like like for example it's, i mean i think where you're going to see a lot of the practical elements of the council is in the liturgy they want to beautify the liturgy they want chant they want organs they want uh uh they want to find these different ways to actually live out what the council actually taught um how we understand the church is hugely important. Like I think like for me, like this is where I, and this is where actually I think this is one of the biggest impacts that's not being talked about. If you read papal documents, and I made this point on Twitter a long time ago, if you read papal documents prior to the council, you would hear well, a little shorter. bit. Of, <laughs> yes, they were shorter. Yes. Although, Hey, if Benedict's going to write a hundred pages, he can write a hundred pages. I'll read it all day. Um, sure. But, right. But, but, um, you heard about missions, but it was usually often going to third world countries where the gospel still hasn't even been proclaimed, etc. Mm-hmm. After the council, every single pope has made mission the, and evangelization the heart of their papacy. And that comes out of Lumen Gentium's idea that the whole church, everyone has a responsibility to help proclaim the gospel. And that, in fact, the laity actually have that primary responsibility in many ways because they're the people who are sitting next in the cubicle next to their neighbor who has got questions about the ultimate things. You're are the you person who's going to... universal calling to holiness? Yes, or, yeah. Is that the but, phrase? Yeah, or, no, but the, yeah the, well, you, you become holy by living your mission, right? And, and yes. so... 
this mission is given to everyone, not just the priest. It's not the priest's role to, and in fact, it actually says that really the priest's role. I mean, the priest evangelizes too, but that's not actually not our primary role. Our our primary role is to to offer sacrifice, to sanctify, to govern, and to teach. Um, I don't. I mean, and obviously, mission stuff comes into that. And but it's really the priest's role to help engage and, and encourage and 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 empower people to become missionaries out in the world so yes. that they bring people to the church and then the priest is there to receive them to say okay great here's what the faith is right but that is that whole mentality and you're seeing little fruits of it here and there i still don't i think the pope speak about it a lot i think bishops speak about it a lot i even think priests speak about it a lot but i think i'd still say a large majority of catholics don't actually know what to do with it like people always like to make fun of the phrase of the new evangelization because we say you know it is we like to talk about it but how many people actually like to do it right uh i think there's i think there's a truth well, to that a lot criticism. of people interpret it to mean like i'm going to do whatever i want and you know this is the yeah. new evangelization oh, yeah. so yeah. even though or, my idea i'm going to become a catholic speaker look i'm doing the new evangelization hey look i've got a I, i'm tweeting speakers right <laughs> yes um, tweeting okay well, my tweets have have freed souls from purgatory no i'm just kidding but i will say though the yeah. the universal call to holiness yeah like the, the chapter five of women yeah. gentium yeah um that was heavily influenced by like one of our favorite uh, Garrigou Lagrange, like one of our favorite theologians. Like we tell people that in the 20th century, there's not a ton of people you can read without qualification, but that um, Garrigou Lagrange is is one that you can read anything he wrote, and it, it's just amazing. Yeah. And he his influence was limited, obviously, because the other a lot of the council fathers didn't like him; they had personal feuds. But um, he, where his ideas really shine through is with the universal call to holiness. And since he's kind of a trad icon, I always laugh at when people do write off the universal call to holiness as some kind of modern thing. When I'm like, guys, like our guy, like our 20, the, the only mm-hmm. guy that we claim to have had in this fight was the one who like, influenced that section. Like, and this right. is one of the only parts that he made it into. Yeah. Like, this is totally our game. Like the... Right the thing um, yeah so yeah anyway well. and I mean, yeah again like um or and I, i'm not saying this stuff didn't exist prior to council like the idea of the apostolate and stuff like that these are things that existed prior to the council but there's a real shift in papal messaging that happens after the council and i think it's actually a very positive thing and this recognition again i think this this expression especially from someone like pope benedict i actually think it's very much rooted in his experience of his pastoral experience from the 40s and early 50s that he recognizes that the gospel really needs to be Reproclaimed in the West, mm-hmm. and and I I think our experience of most Catholics or even lapsed Catholics would say, yeah, it's true. Most people need Jesus; uh, um, they don't have him, and we need to reproclaim that. And I think that's a good thing. It's just we haven't. We keep on saying it. We don't give the tools to actually do it. And and right. I think and I think, but I I look at that as a very positive influence of the Council as well. And I I mean. Obviously, in can- I, I would say another area of impact. I mean, again, people might not like the new code of canon law, but uh, the the new code was put in place specifically to take, especially the teachings on what the church is, as a um, as a means to put into law uh, the role of the bishop, priest, laity, etc. The other thing, quickly though, too, with all that is, um, and this is where I think like we 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 don't really recognize the impact it's going to have. When Cardinal Ratzinger was at the CDF, I've been reading different the documents. The Doctrine of the Faith, Faith yes. formerly the Holy Office. Yes, he wrote a ton of documents. And actually, I was I was reading. Um, I don't I don't know how he has had time to write as much as he. I know. Wrote. 
I know. Um, I, I just want to say that I'm, I'm very impressed. He, yeah, like, I'm jealous. I think my posts, like, I think I spent a lot of time posting. Yeah. Like, he must have spent so much time writing. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I, I was reading the, uh, the, doc, the four-page document that the uh, Congregation for Legislative Text sent to the German bishops. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is all Ratzinger. And I don't, this is the other thing, I don't, this is the, what, uh, I think what John Paul II did through his papacy, Ratzinger is going to have done through the, as head of the CDF, he's going to have implemented in a dogmatic way, and in a teaching way, and in a policy way, the teachings of the council properly interpreted, like one of the, he, 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 it's because of him that the idea that the church is communion really comes from him in a letter in 1992, and that was his big, um, that was one of his big uh, contributions because people were saying, "No, no, the church is the people of God. Therefore, we're this activist. Con- we're this activist organization. We're Marxists, etc." He was. He actually uses the council to overcome all these different ideological pushes to usurp the council for their own ideologies. And history still hasn't really had time to reflect on those impacts yet. But I think that's where you're going to, in the long term, you're going to see a very positive impact of the council through Ratzinger. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I have my like I converted when while while Pope Benedict Ratzinger was um, reigning, yeah. and his work was really influential to me. I definitely have a lot of bones to pick with him now, hmm. um, but I do think that in general, a lot of his work is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I he I think what he constantly reminds people is that. And this sounds really basic, but just the idea that there's a God, like mm-hmm. basically saying that like you can think this, and but like at the end of the day, there is a God, yeah. and He has a will, yeah. and it matters. And so like yeah. whatever you want to construct, otherwise, like there is a God. Yeah. And since I know that he read Nietzsche, yeah. right? Is that a, which yeah. I love that because that's like my favorite alternative reality. Yeah. Um, and it's like the whole thing that undoes all of nihilism is there being a God. And mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like that's what he's constantly trying to remind the church of like, you know, Hey guys, I, I know that you've got this thing you're doing, but I just want to remind you there's a God and he's not mm-hmm. you. And it, it, I think that's kind of been my like boiled down of like what a lot of his message was. And you've studied him much more than I have. So you can mm-hmm. tell me if that's accurate or not, mm-hmm. but it just the reminder of like, Hey, we don't actually get to decide everything. Like it's a not right. totally our world. Yeah. This is what I'm writing my doctoral thesis on is his sacramental vision of the human person. And he has, he develops what I would call, and I'm getting very technical here, but an ontology of insufficiency. So that is to say that man by his nature is not the source of himself and that he experiences this in the very core of his being. And so he takes this to engage with different philosophies and stuff like that to see how does how do they answer this problem? And he will say, well, no, actually only the Catholic vision uh, through the vision of grace and the reality of God can give an answer to this question that is on the human heart. And um, so that's why he reads people like Nietzsche and Kant because he sees in them, these are people who are trying to deal with this question, but here's where they get them wrong. Okay. Yeah. I kind of like that, and I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've just, I've like, I have a I've, Nietzsche is is like a cool thought exercise. Yeah, to he me. is. Oh no, no, like and I think he he needs to be taken seriously because a lot similar, of similar. I was I've been slandered by my friends too, 
And so mm-hmm. since his friends said that he was a self-abuser, um, that's not what I, but I know I've been gossiped about. <laughs> right. So, you know, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, there's so much to say, right? And it's, he had great uh, hair. <laughs> my hair. Yeah. There you are. And look, yeah, yes, exactly. This is Me interesting. Chasing. There is yeah. way more we could say on the topic, I obviously. <laughs> I like how this unfolded though. Yeah, no, it was good. I think, I mean, I think the way we kind of got on and off of it, it, it shows actually the importance of the discussion because whether we like it or not, um, um, we need, um, whether we like it or not, the council did happen, <laughs> right? And whether we like it or not, the, the top, so, I mean, there's different weights to different documents, but they are part of the magisterium. Right. So we have to, we have to take that seriously. I think, I think there's always a legitimate discussion for, uh, how has it succeeded? And is that a problem of the document and the council, or is that a problem of receptivity or what is, and I think those are all fair questions, right? And those are always questions we should always be discussing, but always, I think like this in a, in a spirit of camaraderie and a seeking after the truth and a desire to do, we all want holiness and we all want to follow God's will for us. And I think if we keep that in mind in discussions, then we, we get away from polemics and see that none of us are out to get each other. We're not out to only the other side. We're there to say, here's what I think. That's what you think. Okay. Uh, yeah. What you said there made me think about something different now. And, or I'm going to take that question to heart more and vice versa. And I think that is always a good example of, of what honest dialogue looks like. Okay. And I mean, obviously it's sort of contradicted by literally what we're doing right now. But I think a lot of times my thrust is like, hey, like, we can just quit talking about it. Like, we don't even <laughs> have to, like, instead of trying to figure out what, like, you know, the the purpose of life isn't to figure out what Vatican II it meant. It's like to evangelize. Like, right. that's sort of my thrust. And I'm, I, I sort of say that well, rigidness is a lot of these people, like, right. harping on, oh, the documents say, yeah. the documents say. But I, I, I'm not being dismissive of what you're talking about. Right. I've, I've just that's typically my thing. Is like, guys, it happened. We're not going to go back and undo it. Right. Um. But you know, we let's just like move on. Like in in academics, right. your clout right. is based on how often you're cited. So right. I'm like, you know, if you really want to want to move on from this, just quit citing it. Like, you know, right. that's <laughs> that's how you write a like a professor out of existence is you stop <laughs> citing them. So you know, the thing is, like, though, with magisterial documents, they're never not cited anymore. I know it's they're always going to be cited but I think like I do think what you say though has a certain level of importance to it in that you know we also have to remember not every Catholic has to know everything about the church (laughs) right it's okay to not know everything and and to say do what I trust it I trust the magisterium and how that's going to play out I'm sure it'll be playing out fine it's not my role to determine the importance or unimportance of the documents I just know they're there and they might I like you know they they have had an impact on the church and, and that's fine and I just kind of move on with my life of seeking after holiness yeah I, I mean, you don't need you, to know the minutiae of the of the debates of Vatican II it's one of those things where it's like I kind of say it's like with sports like you, we know the outcome of this game when mm-hmm. we we're talking about the church and the triumph of the gospel and everything mm-hmm. You know, if you know the outcome of a football game, the only reason you would go back and watch all of the plays is because you enjoy it. Right. And so if you don't enjoy watching how this game plays out, then just keep in mind that you know how it ends and and just don't get too into it. Like, there's no 
a lot of people really think, especially lay people, that they have this duty to speak out and to to be involved in everything and yada yada, and it makes them miserable in the process. But they mm-hmm. they think that's okay because they have to do it. Like they're right. not allowed to be happy because they have to be harping on the crisis in the church. Right. And it's like, well, we don't. And again, no, you like, don't. if you know how a game's going to end, you yeah. don't have to watch it on TiVo. Like you you yeah, know exactly. the outcome. Exactly. So if if you're not enjoying it, you can. You can stop. That has led yeah. people to say that we are just trying to claim ignorance, that we don't actually really care what's going on. But you know, it's a lot of. But what, what, it, what's caring going to do? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's not. That's what we keep saying. Like, we <laughs> like. I, how about we don't? It's always kind of frustrating because you have to remind people that God is currently allowing this via either active or passive will to happen. Right. So it's not yeah. like. It's not like someone's pulling the wool over god's eyes so it's exactly and when people like i've got to write my blog to save the church and it's like well guys the church actually doesn't need a savior the church already has a savior believe it or not there are lots of other roles the church needs the church needs saints but the church has a savior and and it's like i mean and this is where i think having a good sense of history like if you want to educate yourself Educate yourself in, in Catholic history in terms of, like, the history of the church over 2,000 years. Because I keep on saying this. She's been through worse. She's been through far worse. She went through a period where all but three bishops were Arians. That's worse, right? Where most of the bishops of the world are heretics. Yeah. That's right. worse. Um, I mean, formal. Like these and it was declared. formal heresy. Yeah, it was formal heresy. And this is after Nicaea, after the dogma was, after the the creed was declared. I mean, like right. people think that after the Nicaea, the Athanasius was like paraded around town as the hero, but it actually just got worse for him. It got there's there is a great story. I he is a sparky man. Like he, uh, <laughs> there's a great story about him about how uh, he was at his cathedral, and. Um, the he, um, the emperor had installed a different bishop to take over him since he wouldn't since he wouldn't hold on to the Arian right. creed, and so he sent soldiers in to install this new bishop and to remove Athanasius by force. And Athanasius had guards and stuff under around him in the cathedral, and he snuck out the backside and got into a boat and went down the river. As he's going down the river, two boats of soldiers are coming straight for him, and his. His guards are looking at him nervously, like, what are we going to do? He goes, just keep on going forward. Just keep on going forward. And as he's passing these two boats, they say, have you seen Athanasius? And he says, he's really close, and he moves on. <laughs> Amazing. That's a good use of a, of a um, what is it, a men, what is, a mental, mental reservation? reservation. Well, yeah. he, he's not even a mental reservation. He's telling the truth. <laughs> well, right. Well, that's why I like... That's, that is kind of amazing because when people talk about clothing and stuff, they're like, and vestments and stuff. I'm like, you know, a lot of this, guys, is because people hadn't, they didn't have photographs. So, like, yeah. you wouldn't know you were looking at the archbishop unless he was exactly like the archbishop. Well, and like, like why, why did Judas have to kiss Jesus? They didn't have the crown. Judas had to kiss Jesus so that they knew who he was. Right, because they didn't have, like, Facebook Live. Exactly. So... But yeah, no, exactly. Athanasius, he had to go off to the desert because he was being persecuted for holding the Orthodox faith. And sometimes the ch- and sometimes but the again, church is like you can't make your. We kind of talk about people prop themselves up as like mini yeah. Athanasius or Catherine of Siena and stuff. Yeah. And so again, though, it's like you you cannot self martyr yourself if that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Like, don't do not self martyrdom is not uh, supported. 
Exactly. Um, so it's about be faithful to the gospel, know what the gospel teaches, and know your place in that. Some people do have a place to have their voices express concern, to offer articles and opinions to, about things, but that's not the place for everyone. And it's okay to just pray and to go to Mass and to seek to be a saint in your own local church. Like The best place you're going to make change is not in Rome, but it's going to be in your local parish. Right. In Rome, what's going to change is your like mental health because <laughs> exactly. you're going to be shocked. And I mean, but you see these people doing it and you're like, well, why don't you just quit blogging? Like it's exactly. clearly making you unhappy. Yeah. And it's hard for them to walk back their stances and just be a faithful Catholic because yeah. they've pushed it so far that they're like, I couldn't go back to be a normie with I've seen too much. Right. And it's like, well, that's why you need to be, you know, I tell people I'm like, I'm all about fasting and penance and we don't do it enough but the faith should be the best thing in your life exactly you should be concerned at maintaining its status as the best thing in your life not something that oh if i only wasn't catholic i could be doing all this this and that and i wouldn't have to it's like you you can't position the the faith as this awful battle that you're fighting every day it's got to be a joyful thing or or you're just going to quit one day like one day you're going to run out of energy and you're not going to want to fight these online battles anymore, mm-hmm. and you're going to quit being Catholic, and you're mm-hmm. going to lose your faith. Yeah, and and it's you're going to. Um, I just had a point. Um, oh, I hate it when that happens. Maybe that's God's way of telling me to shut up. Yeah, he's like, eh, not that good anyway. Ah, uh, it's 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 there, but it's not coming back. It's okay. It may, it may not. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say any any final things, but I guess I don't know if there's anything else to. Do you have anything to say, Matt? You you, you definitely lived out what you tweeted. I just want to <laughs> say that you both made very great points, and I'm very happy that we are all friends, and I love you. That's I love you if you look at the the rate of my the rate of my comments that are throwaway comments, um, I have a much higher throwaway comment rate than Matt. Like normally when Matt speaks, it's like. Oh dang! Like you're hello. you're being too nice, but really that's not how. I've never been called too nice. Yeah, but no, this is uh, this is good because it really we all go through. I don't want to diminish anybody's negative thoughts about Vatican II because I because I, mm-hmm. I don't want to act like they're not legitimate. I and, right because right. but we've all we've all been through phases where we're more pro, more anti, and we're like trying yeah. to figure things out, and we get all we can. Mm-hmm. I. I don't know. It just, it just in my own, all I have to say is really like in my own life is it really becomes a lot easier uh, when you just accept that you accept it. Like with the Amazon Synod, like you have to accept that it's happening Mm -hmm. and then you can, you can go from there. Like that's the value of a good spiritual director too, right? Yeah. Like you, there are people that have been put on this earth, like Father Harrison, for example, who who are meant to care more about these things than Matt Baker, Zach Mabry, right? And we all have things we need to care about equally, but then we have things we can mm-hmm. take to priests. So it really, right? Yeah, especially with Vatican II, like there's no, I I don't, it's not going anywhere. So right. you, so really, and we may have disagreements about like the spirit of or what what's right. happening but like it's just it yeah. is and that's why that's what i think we might have said this we've been talking for 18 hours but zach and i like we're just so happy that we get to the option to go to the latin mass and like yeah in in our latin mass parishes we all get stuck on twitter brain but 
I believe me when I tell you that people at the Latin Mass do not think about Vatican II nearly as much as you think they do, right? Right. And that's fine. Right. They're not debating. They're not critiquing everybody's well, outfits either. Like, yeah, they're they're yeah. not arguing but that's, the way you see online. But that's fine because people at the Novus Ordo parishes are not thinking about Vatican II as much as you think they are either. I can uh, I can almost that's guarantee a really good you, point, man. Like, yeah, I can guarantee you maybe five people in that parish know there's a sin. Yeah, going well, on that's right the now. thing. It's like well, that's five too many. We, we get we exactly. yeah. Like I, if I go to the parish about a mile away from the house, like it's easy to think like, oh, they just like they're thumping Vatican II and they have all their bumper stickers. They don't. They do not think about it. Like it just it's. Yeah. And again, we can say like you you're cla- you It's easy to claim ignorance, but no, it's just. We're we're we are living. We are always living. I think we're always living in the best time to be alive. Probably. Mm-hmm. So, like, <laughs> for our own salvation, we are. Yeah, and we live in a society. We Ooh. live in a society. It, sometimes it be like that, Father. <laughs> but yeah, so just like it's okay to have it's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to have concerns. Yeah. But how you manifest it and how you exactly. how you let it get to you? Because, like I said. If, I don't know, like a half hour ago. I think of I let a lot of things get to me that I shouldn't, and I I don't mm-hmm. need more of that. So it, yeah, it, yeah, well, it, yeah. There, there's a there, in philosophy. There's a distinction between form and content. So like when you're talking about speech, there's the truth that you're saying, like the the content, the what you want to say, and then there's the form. It's how you say it, the shape you give it, and um, both those things are equally important for the human being. Uh, when you're when you're talking about things, and if we're just going to try and bash each other over the head about these things, then we're ignoring form, which is an essential part of of communication. Uh, I always like to say, like, if you're going to speak the truth, it always has to be in a beautiful way for the good of the other. Um, but it, I mean, I like sometimes that. even beautiful things are going to be hard to hear, right? Uh, I'm never going to back down from the gospel. Like we, we, we say beautiful, we might think, oh, we're going to couch it and not let the truth come forth. But if you let the truth not have beauty and goodness, it's going to be a hammer that you're going to hit over people's mm-hmm. heads with. Um, it, and, and I think that's always a good form of conversation to say, hey, yeah, like as I and I, it's not to say like I, I will always be a Vatican II apologist. I think part of it's just because of my seminary formation, but sure. I also don't ignore the criticisms or the critiques people have and I take seriously that okay is that a fault in the document in governance in culture what are the what are the reasons for those critiques and criticism those always have to be taken seriously because if you're going to be a reasonable person you have to think about those things sure that's grow it's growth and it's you know gaining merit and virtue and all that Mm -hmm fun stuff Mm -hmm. exactly the other thing reasonable people have to think about unfortunately is time Time. we're actually at double our usual (laughs) length we could probably keep going two two more hours um but that was awesome uh, this has been a fantastic conversation father thank you for um zach you should come to phoenix at the end of december oh yeah all the boys the boys are going to be here i want all the boys are going to be in the yard we oh zach hey zach (laughs) zach well zach zach Um, zach zach if you come, Matt. we can do Matt. a live Roman Circus, clerically speaking, crossover episode. Oh, my gosh. We, we should do, like, a battle to the death. Oh, no, dueling no. is still not allowed the magisterium under... How would you Leo feel about... But how would you feel about killing a priest? Well, it... Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
All right, tweet us at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z-A-C Mabry. Father Harrison is at F-R Harrison. Uh, we're on patreon.com slash Roman Circus Pod. If you don't want to do that, patreon.com slash what, clerically, clerical pod? Oh my gosh, actually, I think it's clerically, clerically speaking. speaking. <laughs> Shows you how much email, I remember these things. Email us, podcast at romancircusblog.com. Find us on iTunes. We try to read all the emails. We try to read them. Uh, rate and review us if you get a chance. Please tell your friends about the show, but tell your enemies because why, Father Harrison? Jesus says we must Jesus love says our enemies. We must love our enemies. This was great. <laughs> this is the longest podcast we've ever done. Thank you for listening, uh, and we will talk to you all next week. See ya. Bye. God bless.